Digital Drift, episode 49, recorded Saturday, 10th of January 2015, The Legend of Korra, book 3, Change, part 1. This is the first episode of what's going to be a whole month of coverage of the last two seasons of The Legend of Korra, after which we'll be starting off the Disney specials. That's myself, Sharon, and Daniel Floyd reviewing every single one of the classic Disney animated films. It's a massive project that's going to take well over a year to complete, and we'll be reviewing other films, TV, and games in the meantime. Now over to Avatar. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. Only the Avatar can master all four elements and bring balance to the world. We're back to conclude the Avatar podcast. For newcomers, this series was begun back in 2012 with episode 95 of Digital Gonzo and the review of the last Airbender movie, which has proved ever popular on YouTube with people looking to see that movie for free for some reason and then leaving me messages of bile and hate when it turns out to not be that terrible movie, but in fact, a two-hour discussion about it. What kind of this video? It's very bad video. Just talk! We need show, not talk. I think you know that you are one motherfucker. I like firebending and waterbending. Practice a monologue? Hey, where is the movie? I hate it! Fuck! Where is the movie? This is just a bunch of bull shit. Gay, but movie. What the hell is this? Why, nigg? Gah, you are just talking for two hours, shut up. Damn, waiting, then the fuck thing arrive. I don't mean to hurt you, but this sucks. Don't put this stuff on anymore, but goo try. We don't need it, put it in your ass. In quotation marks, free film, should have known better. It's amazing movie. Fuck you, go to hell. In French, please? But let's face it. These shows are what brought half of you listeners to this podcast. This has been the most requested single episode review we've ever had. You know at the beginning of Honest Trailers, where they put up all their requests? Do Frozen. Hey, do Frozen. You should totally do Frozen now. Frozen, please. Do an Honest Trailer for Frozen. When are you going to do Frozen? Well, that happened. And if this was on YouTube, I'd be doing that thing right now where all the requests pop up at once. Okay, okay, we got it. Keep your star pads on. We read you loud and clear. And here, because you've all been so good this year, is The Legend of Korra, book three. Returning to the series they started are my now co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince and the Animation Archives. Hello there. And now from Game Burst, Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. Okay, for this show, rather than going episode by episode or character by character, we're going to do something different. I have a series of themes that I'm going to call out and we can discuss them each in turn, hopefully covering the character growth and events of book three in the process. Now, to give us a full range of discussion, we're going to have to talk about the events of book four. The negatives of trammeling and limiting conversation just for the people who haven't yet finished the series are not worth the positives. That's why we waited 
that's why we waited so we could do like cover the whole thing rather than just finish season three. Oh god, that's incredible as an ending. I wonder what that means. Now we know what that means. That way we now get full scope. So if you've seen three but not four yet, you're gonna have to wait a little longer before you listen to this show. It's definitely not. It, you don't want to spoil four. You want to see that fresh, yeah. and you don't want four spoiled for you on Twitter and the forum. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want people so, like talking about what happens in four literally just hours after it finishes, just before you've seen it. You don't want that happening. Oh, did that happen to you guys? It totally happened to me. Yeah. So thank you, <laughs> oh. everybody. Oh dear. So yeah, it, it'll be worth it in the end. Just see season four. It's great. We can. We do. We all endorse season four. We all work. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> both both these seasons. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, in fact, I was thinking about that. The um uh the the structure of Korra. It feels like the first two seasons were the kind of warm up in the same way that uh, Legend of Aang was water. That same number of episodes, and then Earth. They came back with confidence and like. Three and four together, especially because they were released so close together, feel like the equivalent of Legend of Ang Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, I kind of, I kind of wish there'd be a five and six. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, they, they could they could pick it up decades afterwards and have Korra uh, be considerably older. That would be cool. We'll see, shall we? Yeah. So we'll start with behind the scenes and. Let's get the whole going digital only thing out of the way. Who knows all about this? You actually have to go further back in time than just the going digital only because uh, this season kind of was kind of released out of nowhere. They mm-hmm. they released the trailer and then two weeks later it was airing on TV. Mm. And all of that was in response to, uh, I believe it was episode four to six were leaked online and it was the Spanish language version of those episodes. And in response, Nickelodeon kind of panicked and rushed the season out. Um, and uh, because of that, the viewing figures weren't that great. And then, like, after, I believe it was six episodes, I've probably got that wrong. Um, I should probably After a number that. of episodes. It was an, after a number of episodes. A small one. Yeah, um, and the viewing figures weren't at at the number they were hoping for. They went digital only. Um, After they were the ones who panicked. (laughs) Yeah. They figured, that's an accurate reading. Here's the thing. Like, if they... If this was the plan all along, if if their plan was to release book three and four digitally because the nature of the Cora audience is a bit different from Nickelodeon's uh, main audience. Like, it, it, like it's billed as a kid's show, but the majority of the audience is actually adults. Mm. and at um, least teens. Yeah. And the, the time slot it was airing at were at 7 o'clock on Fridays, mm. um, especially for the teenage early 20 demographic. That's, that's when they're getting the ready to go time. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the worst time to air that show. You want so it at I 8 can... o'clock on a Wednesday night. Yeah, or yeah. Or 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night so that the kids can still see it. Yeah, and, and so I do understand the thought process behind making it digital only. It, it makes sense. But they just handled it really poorly. Yeah. If Like, right from the word go, like, episode one, book three, online only, this is how we're handling it from now on, that would have been fine. But because they did it 
you know, a third of the way through this season, there was discussions about, oh my God, are they going to cancel Cora? Yeah. And obviously that wasn't the case, but just the fact that they did it so abruptly it allowed that confusion and fear to spread throughout the fan base. And the whole thing could have just been handled a hell of a lot better. Mm. Yeah, they definitely could have, if, if things, if they planned it well, um, they would have gotten far more um, appreciation uh, announcing, oh, we're going to start streaming it instead of having it um, solidified to the TV schedule. That would have built up quite a bit of groundswell. Instead, it just, they they caused the exact opposite they wanted. They caused panic within people thinking it might get cancelled instead of, of oh, yeah. it's going to be easier to watch now on. Was it not actually available digitally for uh, books one and two? Because... Oh, no. Obviously, I live in America and, and, and watch this on my TV. No, <laughs> um, no um, I don't think they ever, until they, they, the I, I Blu-ray think they releases. Were, I, yeah, they were released digitally. Sorry, sorry, no, I, 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 sent my, the, I bought the Blu-rays and then sent them to myself back in time. That way it's totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> I totally bought them. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> but anyway, uh, sorry, uh, as you were saying, it, they weren't actually available digitally for seasons one and two? Um, not for, not immediate. I think it was quite some time until they released a digital version of right. one and two. I, think, I don't think it was until the Blu-rays were actually out that they start adding them to iTunes, I think. Yeah. The way they added them to iTunes, if I recall correctly, I remember some people telling me who were watching them on iTunes that... For whatever reason, the last couple of episodes, I think, of book two didn't appear on iTunes for months for some mm, reason. Brilliant. Uh, it it seems like the way that Nickelodeon was handling distribution of this series in general was kind of spotty for the remainder of its run. Still waiting for the Blu-rays availability in the UK. They just haven't released them. Just Good. on DVD. Carry I mean, on, thankfully, the the Blu-rays are region-free, so we can yeah, yeah. Uh, bring them over here. And but it's, but it's this isn't just Cora, though. I think this is just animation uh, yeah, outside that's right. of the US in general. It is yeah, an industry-wide issue. Yeah, just just not acknowledging that there is an audience over overseas for that kind of content, mm. for that, you know, Blu-rays and what have you. There's a, a big mountain of cash to be made, and they're just ignoring it. Don't it's, you think uh, that maybe sticking The Last Airbender, seasons one through three, on in HD? Yeah. I, can, can that be? I mean, you can, you can polish up anything, pretty much. Unless yeah. it was shot on really terrible cameras, like a really crappy old um, uh, independent film. It's terrible when you have to say, I want to give you my money, but you won't take it. <laughs> Shut up and take my money. I believe it's become a meme. Yeah, yeah it, it's, I mean, credit to Nickelodeon for funding this series all the way through, but you yeah, really right. do get a sense that they do not realize how great a thing they have in their hands. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Is that, is that all regarding um, Nickelodeon, do we think? Yeah I, yeah, I mean, personally, I don't really want to dwell on it because these last two seasons were so good. Yeah, they're triumphant. And basically, make... it's, it's almost like Nickelodeon couldn't really spoil it, no yeah. matter how mishandled it was. Yeah. And, and like, like I, yeah, I agree with uh, Dan. I'm, I'm very grateful that they did see it through to the end. It got a proper ending, and so few shows really get that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> appropriately enough, the first theme is uh, renewal and 
by extension, rebirth. Come back, Boomju! If you don't want to wear the sweater I made you, that's fine. I'm sorry I got mad. Boomju, I'm running out of tree. Can we go down now? Boomju, a little help. Wow, that still hurt a lot. Just any instances where these themes are handled throughout the 13 episodes? Well, it's handled straight off the bat. You've got this renewal of the world because of the opening of the spirit portals. Um, the, uh, the, The sort of rebirth of everything as now a combination of spirit world and and physical world rather than the two being separated as before um and i i one thing that quite impressed me actually watching it this time round was how they don't shy away from straight away going in there with this this has happened but it's not this magical wonderful thing that that everybody was hoping it would be there are difficulties there are problems um I mean, it's it's very closely integrated with the reappearance of um, this sudden burst of, of airbending ability, which likewise comes with its problems. One of the things that we, we said at the end of our uh, Book 2 uh, review was that although we felt that, you know, Book 2 was a good season, but it was kind of messy and inconsistent. But one of the things we said was that ending has so much potential, Mm. um, what it could mean for the entire world, opening up the spirit portals. And Book 3 immediately capitalizes on it. As as Sharon says, having the airbenders come back is such a big thing for this world. Um, I predicted it, by the way, way back on, like, was it Season 2? Maybe even Season 1 we were were reviewing it. And I basically was talking about the balance being restored and that nature would bring back the airbenders in some way. Yeah. One of of the things uh, that I love about this, the first half of Book uh, 3, is the way that they handle the joy it brings certain characters but also the difficulty it brings certain characters uh, i'm talking about tenzin specifically here because when he f- when he first finds out about this he's almost he's staring at the statue of his dad yeah. and he's overwhelmed by how momentous like he wishes his dad was still alive to experience the rebirth of the air nation he's overwhelmed by emotion and that scene is so heartbreaking for me like because up until this point our only exposure really to the air nation was ang and his progeny um and the the impact of having this culture return um it's felt not only by the characters but by us as an as audience members but then to have the realization that look these people may be able to airbend but they're not, uh, you know, they're not air nomads. Mm. They're, they're, 
you, they were brought up in you know the Earth Kingdom culture, mm. so they're they're still Earth Kingdom citizens. Now they they you know eventually uh, they managed to convince some people to join uh, the Air Nation, but I, I I really respected the fact that um, the show was brave enough to show that look just because this is returned doesn't mean like everyone's going to drop everything and acknowledge how important the uh, air nomad culture is. They I've, still have lives to live. I've just thought of something. All of these yeah. people who suddenly developed airbending, could they previously earthbend? They don't even go into it. No, I None of them, them show any right. knowledge of bending at all. Really. So here's the weird thing. Surely developing... Like, they've spent their entire lives being surrounded by uh, competent earthbenders, and then they can suddenly bend for the first time. And they all just seem sort of, eh, about it. Like, watching it again, I was like, hang on a second, surely someone's a little starstruck by the fact that they can now not only bend, but bend in this incredibly rare way. No one has that. Well, that's one of the things that I thought was was conveyed brilliantly and and was one of the distinct differences between this and... um uh, Legend of Ang mm. is that in this version of the world in this time mm. bending has kind of become uh, almost mundane yeah mm. the the idea that um, because th- these people they're not interested in the historical elements of bending they've not yes there's been earthbenders around them but by the looks of things um, earthbending within the earth kingdom has become largely ceremonial mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't see people just out and about doing it the way they, they were in the villages in um, in Legend of Aang. Um, but and there that, was a lot of conflict between benders and non-benders, especially in season one. And when you threaten to, to take to a bender's with, bending yeah. away, then they go well, like Tano. Okay, well, well, maybe not so much between Legend of Aang and this then, but bet- since season one, basically, mm. the, the world seems to have... Um, have had this this ability to adapt, and again with the the bringing in of the spirit world, for a, a brief moment everybody's amazed, mm. and then they turn away <laughs> and go back to their lives, yeah. and they just they they work around it because that's what people do. They adapt. You bring in uh, a magnificent new thing. Everybody's fascinated for a short space of time, and then they adapt. They incorporate it and they carry on, um, and. That I think is is one of the the main elements of what Cora has to overcome mm. throughout the whole of this series, from from one through to four, is that she, yes, she's the Avatar, but what is that in this day and age? What yeah. does that mean? What does she do? What are her responsibilities? What is required of her, mm. and what can she do in this world where it, people? are going to want new and more and bigger and louder and brighter constantly. How can one person keep up with that, regardless of whether or not they're the Avatar? Actually, someone is somewhat starstruck with the fact that they can suddenly bend and they couldn't before. And thankfully, it's a character we've already known and loved, Boomy. He's over the moon that he can bend at last. He's part of the gang at last. And is that because he's grown up around it, but never been able to feel part of it? Yeah. That's why I, th- I felt that that should have been reflected uh, uh, more across the board. But it, it, it almost seems like they wanted to do the montage where they go from door to door and say, your best friend will be a flying bison. It's a great montage. Yeah. Um, he's, he's Aang's kid, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the humor in this series is wonderful. 
I, I really appreciate it. It feels like a lighter tone, and then it gets so dark near the end. I feel like it's not so much the air bending that people are kind of not so fussed about. As the air it's nomads. More, it's the air nomad, yeah. It's that culture. And you have to remember, for these people, this is an ancient culture at this point. We're yeah. talking, uh, you know, like... 170 years since the mass genocide of the uh, air, uh, air nomad uh, civilization. Um, so this culture just seems like ancient history to so many people. Yeah. And for somebody to, you know, some 50-year-old man to come knocking on your door and going, hey, uh, shave your head. Yeah, uh, cool, tattoo. No <laughs> cool tattoo. No worldly possessions. Uh, no meat for you. Uh, we'll love like, our robes. They're yeah. really breathable. <laughs> I, I, I completely understand that reaction. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. It's cool that I have airbending, but I'm not going to drop everything and give up the life that yeah. I've been leading. For where are the cool airbenders, basically? Yeah. I mean, especially, I in an era, especially in an era where technology has closed the gap so much between yes. the life status of a bender and a regular person. Like It used to be that bending allowed you to just do so much more you could probably travel faster you could you just had this immense amount of power that the average person didn't have and so there was a big status difference there but technology has really narrowed that gap so where you don't need bending to have a lot of ability and a lot of things that you can do with your life and so for someone like boomy who for whom airbending has always been a pretty important thing even if he doesn't have it like i love that his first thought after learning he can airbend is I have to tell Tenzin. And his second thought is wait till I tell mom, which is also kind of sweet when you think of how he would have known growing up how important it was to his parents that airbenders returned to the world. But yet for Tenzin preserving the airbenders presence and culture in the four nations is the like his single most important tax uh, task in life. But something he's not been considering up until this point and and it wasn't even something I was considering early in the series, but is just how air nomad culture is going to need to adapt to the modern world because he's now got this full batch of new airbenders who have been living in that modern world already. And there's no way to yank them out of that and force them into what air nomad culture was a century and a half ago. I mean, the world's changed and the people have changed in that world and an air nomads existence in it has to change. And that's something that I don't think Tenzin had been thinking about. And it's something he's going to have to come to terms with and looking ahead to season four and even just seeing little touches like the, way that airbenders now implement wingsuit tech into their clothing mm. is a sign that I think he's starting to uh, starting to adapt to that. I, I love the actual adaptability and uh, being able to reassess the situation is what separates this from the freaking Jedis in uh, the Star Wars prequels. It's so much less creepy that they come door to door and say, do you want to do this? As opposed to, your child is five years old and seems force sensitive. Let him come with us back to our sexless temple. <laughs> Another thing that I do like is how um, Tenzin has the rest to... of his life. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> That's so creepy. Another thing I like is how um, Tenzin has to come to the realization that um, well, he's been brought up in an air tame, air nomad um, culture. It's mm. been his choice. Whereas, and if you remember historically, like, their nomads normally take, have uh, orphans and people without families and they're raised within the air nomad um, culture. So they know, that's what they know. So it's perfectly normal to them. Whereas, um, because 
the air numbers were so unreclusive to a certain extent, like they barely took part in the other world, to have someone come to your door and say, remove yourself from the rest of the world, just completely. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what we're about. I know we've got these cool powers now, but um, now you're going to come away to our private island and never see anybody again. Say goodbye to fun. <laughs> They don't traditionally proselytise. It's something that people come to them. But also, it could be argued that there is something of a parallel there with, hey, look at this amazingly intricate, in-depth story we've got, and you're going to stick it surrounded by SpongeBob and um, (laughs) Ben 10 and various other things that people with limited attention span can enjoy. Okay. Just for an experiment, folks, watch uh, the uh, the last episode of this series. Well, just watch it all in context, and then after you've finished, immediately watch an episode of SpongeBob. Just just see how that feels. Um, actually, the thing you mentioned earlier about the tech, Dan, that appears to be and can be read as a take on magic in modern day culture, in that we've now closed the gap with technology so much that we're doing more interesting, like. This happened in Harry Potter. They they've been doing stuff with magic for years, and like Harry Potter, you know, it's it's it just seems like a shortcut now for what we can now do with tech most of the time. And you've even got a direct example of how that interacts with um, bending in the form yeah. of Asami, who, despite the fact that she has no bending abilities, her engineering skills and her understanding of how technology works means she can not only keep up with everybody else, she overtakes them a lot of the time. Yeah. In Harry Potter's world, our methods of communication, the muggle ways of doing it, are better than wizards. Way That's true. Better. They're still using owls! Yeah. What a cool owl! Let me show you the internet. The fire. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, we, we can text that now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. slightly off contact but uh yeah this all this blends in with uh, we're still on renewal and rebirth but um this leads on to duty and responsibility the next one i think we've, we've pretty much covered a lot of it there's one thing i did want to uh touch on in renewal mm-hmm. um it, because in the first episode you see zaheer get like his demonstration of his abilities yeah. and it's, get, it's like the renewal of a new threat well, an old threat, to be honest, because yeah. this is someone who's been after Cora since she was born. And now he's because of the events of season two, he has the ability and the new strength to continue where he started off from. Yeah. Do you know what would have been really cool, actually? Like start this series with the flashback of the uh, the Red Lotus trying to get to uh, young Cora and failing and getting captured by the was it the White Lotus that put them away? Yeah. 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 That would have been great. And, like, you know, basically Zaheer getting uh, shut up and then at the very, very end, Zaheer gets let out and you're like, oh, my God, that's what this really entails. Because yeah. otherwise you, you do see that whole scene and although it's impressive and you get the understanding that he couldn't do all this stuff before, you're still kind of sitting there going, mm. yeah, but who is he? But yeah. they have an aversion to flashbacks and go, like, don't live in the past. Well, I don't know. Sometimes it adds context to the present and indeed the future. No, forget the past. Speaking of context, actually, there was one question that occurred to me um, throughout this series, um, mainly because of this whole sort of sudden reappearance of of airbending skills after generations of, of it not existing. Where exactly does bending come from? I mean, I know that we've got the the sort of the mythology of um, one and um, 
the idea that people learned it from various animals, but we don't have a categorical definitive statement about what causes the ability You mean midichlorians? Yes. However, however, I don't want it. My theory, I know, I know, but I just want to kind of put this out there. My theory is, right, if the um, the existence of the avatar is because of um, the bonding between human and um, Rava. Mm-hmm. So is oh, it yeah, feasible no. that the ability to bend comes from... Scientology? Carry on. You're going to say, like, everyone's got a weird little demon in them, yeah? Is that what you're going to say? Well, I wasn't going to phrase it quite like that, <laughs> but yeah, you were thinking yeah, it. no, no, no. The the idea that um, well, not everyone, no. just people who have bending abilities, because if you think about it, then it kind of makes sense that there would be all these um, elemental spirits that could control the air element. That mm-hmm. following the wiping out of the air nomads had literally nowhere to go and got yeah. trapped in the spirit world. Open and up that's the portal, they, yeah. they all come out, find people with you know, bending ability channels that hasn't been utilized because they're not right for fire bending and they're not right for earth bending, etc. Um, and then, you know, and actually that stands to reason that since the air nomads weren't of a nation, they tended to, they, they would be for, from all four points of the compass that they would just occur naturally within the other cultures and, There's much more yeah. blending in this um, in in this more modern world as well, because in the in the past it's in bending, been bending. very much uh, designated by geographic location. But with the presence of Republic City, which has literally thrown all the nations into a melting pot together, there seems to be um, you know more people moving around between the different nations as well. Um, so you've got. You know, somebody might move from the Fire Nation to the Earth Kingdom, and then you've got multiple chances of what their children are going to be born able to do. So maybe that's, you know, the the blending of the different elements is kind of then naturally progresses on to the, the blending of the spirit world and the physical world. Yeah. Anybody else? See, I only had a very vague thought that it was tied to... Like some having some people having a slightly better tie to the spiritual world, and that's what gave them their ability to bend. That's why it was so rare. But I mean, I I I never like thought about it that hard. I only had like a vague like theory on it. I I think personally, I I I do kind of prefer it to remain mysterious because. Mm, mm. it, at the end of the day, bending is a more imagined than it is a science, and I think I am more willing to just say it's kind of just the spiritual kind of you know the spirit world is rebalancing the world when the real world and the spirit world were reconnected. Uh, that that makes sense to me. Um, I, I I don't need it to be too detailed i like it kind of vague and mystical because that kind of it frees up the story for now it frees up the story yeah yeah once you tie it down you're like right so this is how it's been for thousands of years and will continue for thousands of years okay any more on duty and responsibility uh this one very much ties into the bay funk family Mm. Mm. um because is it 
I forget, is it episode four or five when they reach the Metal Clan? I've got it's, this on. It's episode five. You get a direct link into Lynn's past and like the way she is, and you get you get to see what a bit of um how Toff's uh, parenting skills aren't the aren't the best, yeah, and how it's created a quite a large rift between her daughters. I think for me, when I think of duty and responsibility, I think of the scene in the episode uh, the ultimatum with Tenzin and all the airbenders are gathered together uh, and Zaheer is like, right, we're, we're using you as leverage and Tenzin's like, I, I, am, I will not let you use us to get to Korra. And Zaheer's like, you don't really have a choice. And Tenzin says, yes, I do. And I, for, for me at that point, Tenzin's not just protecting Korra, he's protecting the Air Nation and he feels like the entire Air Nation, he has a responsibility for it. Um, and he's he goes so far. They ultimately he survives the series, but it's heavily suggested that Tenzin is willing to lay down his life to protect yeah. both Korra and this uh, and the new Air Nation. Um, and and he's ho- he's putting all of that on his shoulders at that point. The the entire weight of an entire you know this new civilization that's formed. It, it's. It's a really heartbreaking scene when you realise just how far he's willing to go to protect this new nation. One of the things that's always struck me about Tenzin actually is the um, the ridiculous standards that he holds himself to because yeah. of who his father was, which in one way doesn't make sense because his father was the Avatar. He can never be that. Yeah. But everything that Aang achieved is sort of his template for for what he wants to be able to do. And I think that's why he makes this this bringing the air nomads back together again such an important thing for him. Hmm. And you can see how that imposition of those standards on himself extends to the standards that he, when he's not thinking about it tries to hold other people to as well which is one of the things that makes him such a difficult person to learn from because if you're if you're a beginner at something and you're trying to learn from somebody who expects you to be fantastic at it mm. straight away without beginning with encouragement at even your first tentative experiments that go pathetically wrong mm. if all they're saying to you is, well, that wasn't very good, but never mind, because you'll do better tomorrow. You need encouragement in those first baby steps. And Tenzin is really not good at that. Yeah. I think I think also Tenzin's not very good at sharing the responsibility he feels he has. Um, his daughter, uh, Janora, is a more than competent airbender and has proven herself more adept at spiritual techniques than him. Mm. Yet he is really tentative, uh, tentative, 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 sorry. He's really tentative when it comes to embracing the fact that his daughter is growing up. Mm. She's really responsible and mature and she has uh, more than earned the right uh, more than earned the right to be an airbending master mm. but he can't he he, he has difficulty uh, difficulty letting go of being the most responsible mm. um airbender in the world um 
and uh, f- thankfully he he comes to his senses uh, and finally acknowledges his daughter's power um but that episode um the original airbenders uh, that that's a great arc for tenzin for him realizing that he doesn't have to bear the weight of this nation on his own yeah. that he can share the responsibility with his daughter and with Korra, I think his relationship with Janora is actually reflected in his relationship with Korra because she's yeah. very much a daughter figure to him as well. Um, and Korra is somebody who eventually he has no choice but to accept what she's capable of and what she's growing into. But if you look at some of the ways, uh, some of the scenes in which she's interacting with him, she questions herself far longer than she really ought to. Mm. And although, I mean, she's not a child like Aang was, but I think because everybody in the world's got an opinion about how she behaved as the Avatar, and she's, I think, a little bit too quick to defer to people who are older than her and who she perceives as being more experienced than her and more capable than her. And in this season, more than any of the earlier ones, I think she progresses from questioning herself constantly to gradually accepting that actually there are some things that she can do and they aren't all to do with just hitting things really hard. Mm. I was going to say that duty and responsibility seem to me applies a lot to Cora as well, because mm-hmm. even in episode one, to me, she feels a good bit more grown up and responsible. Yeah. And but she, just a lot less arrogant in general. She's not flaunting power anymore or feeling like she is owed respect because she's the Avatar. It, I, think, I think you can just tell because of the severed connection to past Avatars, she now feels way less sure of her ability to handle a situation properly. She doesn't think she's wise enough to be what an Avatar has to be. And she worries that she's doing more harm than good, which is some character growth I'd actually have loved to see maybe a little sooner in book two, but I really love seeing it now. Yeah. Just, I mean, how do you figure book one Korra would have dealt with the scared new airbender on top of the bridge? Punched him. That's because exactly my first guess the scene I was thinking of. Because <laughs> my first guess is, like, my guess is her first sentence would be, come down here before you hurt yourself. And her second one would be, that's it, I'm bringing you down here whether you like it or not, and yeah. going and punching him. Yeah, with fire till he, he was basically, uh, she would he would end up just running away genuinely, like so upset that she would never be able to get through to him again. Yeah, and then but, she'd say, what's his problem? Yeah. But by having that connection with her previous self severed and not being able to just go into herself and say, right, okay, Ang, how would you deal with this? Roku, how would you deal with this? Then trying to replicate what they've told her, hmm. not being able to, and then throwing her hands up and saying, oh, fine, I'll do it my way since this obviously isn't going to work. She's having to develop an entirely new toolkit for herself. And there's there's the scene with Dor. She, you know, she's utilizing compassion and understanding and listening to people, which she hasn't really done a whole lot of before. Hmm. And um, further on in the um, in the series season as well, she she tries to resolve the conflict between Lin and Sue. Now, admittedly, that doesn't end up turning out the way that she wanted it to, but she's at least trying to do it in a different way than she would have dealt with it before. She's been more tactful about things. I I also think Cora is a lot more self aware uh, of her flaws, um, and this actually stretches all the way to book four as well. She's kind of recognizing the more negative parts of her personality yeah. and she's not discarding the ones that get talked about on message boards every single hour of the day <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but importantly, she's not discarding them. Like they're still a part of who she is, and you do see her hot-headed nature kind of rear its head every once in a while. But she knows it's there now. She's not. She's not kind of ignorant of the impact of her anger the way she was in book one and especially towards the beginning of book two um and that that beginning to be self-aware of her flaws uh is what informs her decisions towards the end of book four um and we're starting to see that journey here at the beginning of book three yeah well that's how you grow you have yeah. to know what your flaws are if you're yeah. going to move past them. If you are blind to them and all you feel is just annoyance and resentment to anybody who dares to point them out and you never examine them yourself, how can you ever improve on them? Yeah. That is actually one aspect that I really wish had been resolved, especially once Coran makes that huge step up in terms of um, uh, maturity. And uh, at the end, she ends up wise not overflowing with wisdom, but much more able to sort of look back on her mistakes and, and she's grown as a person. Because there's no guarantee of coming back here, there's no real straightforward way to say, well, I'm sure that connection would have come back at some point to that connection to her past selves. That was a that was a wonderful aspect of it. And I completely agree that uh, uh, taking it away has allowed her to grow and has had required her to be resourceful and uh, look inward. But the balance that the whole of season four is named after wasn't entirely restored. Or, you know, obviously balance doesn't necessarily mean the old balance, but uh, I feel like that was a missed opportunity. This is a disaster. Don't worry. We'll figure something out. Easy for you to say. You don't have my poll numbers. 8% approval? Who are they asking? You can't take that to heart. People are just frustrated. I don't blame them. I should be able to fix this. I'm the Avatar. I gotta say, I love being a part of this family. You got the grumpy dad, the wacky uncle, the put-upon mom, crazy kids. Oh, this is great. Where's Mako? Oh, you mean the brooding teenager? He's staying at the police station. Still? I told him Tenzin invited us to stay here since our apartment is a vine habitat now, but he said he had to focus on work. This is slightly tangential, but related to all this growth in Korra, but <laughs> when we were last talking about Korra series book two, one of the really big complaints that I had throughout that show was that I didn't think that they'd succeeded in making me feel attached to this main cast of characters. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody yet, but I felt like within the first 10 minutes of this book, <laughs> I already felt way more attached to the to the new team avatar than I ever had before, because it feels like something finally clicked. Yeah. Like Cora is now feeling a little bit more grown up and responsible, or at least she's got some humility and she's trying to improve Mako, who's just been kind of bland and reserved and kind of gen generically cool a lot of the time so far is now way more relatable because he's feeling awkward a lot of the time around mm -hmm. Korra and Asami or just putting his foot in his mouth and that makes him way more relatable and entertaining. Bolin's pretty much the same but he was already likable mm. and Asami is getting a lot more time to just have casual interaction talking with Korra and just because that they pair the two of them off with just for being pals a lot of the time throughout this book which brings a lot more just 
casual personality out of both of their characters. And it's it's not like a full Tales of Bossing Say episode, but it is small little Tales of Bossing Say moments scattered mm. throughout the book that just brings so much more out of a lot of them. Like, I'm so glad that this attachment and this the appeal of this new group of characters has finally clicked because it's the one thing that I really was waiting for and that I really felt had to happen if this series was going to ever approach the Aang series level of greatness. Definitely. Any more on duty and responsibility? I think this does... We, we, we went to the Beifong clan and then we went away. One thing that you observed about uh, Lynn, Sharon... Yeah. A huge aspect of the conflict that exists between them is that Lynn takes responsibility for everything... Su Yin takes responsibility for nothing. Yes. And specifically, not just Lin takes responsibility for everything, but she has got used to doing so because she's obviously spent her teenage years at least overcompensating for Sue's lack of responsibility. Yeah. After 30 years, you're finally ready to talk. When we were in Mom's office that day, you could have taken responsibility for what you did. But instead, you stayed quiet and let Mom throw her whole career away. Mom didn't throw her career away. She retired the next year. She was a hero. You think she wanted to retire? She was so guilt-ridden about what she did to protect you, she didn't feel worthy of her badge. Look, I admit that I was not a perfect kid and I've made some mistakes in the past, but... <laughs> you made some mistakes? Lynn, Mom and I already talked about this years ago and worked things out. If you had gotten together with us like we'd asked, you would know that I'm a different person now. I've been a different person for a long time. You think just because you live in a big fancy house and have a chef who cooks you fancy food that you're a different person? Maybe you can fool everyone else, but you can't fool me. I see right through you. You know what, Lynn? You're the one who hasn't changed. You're still a bitter loner who only cares about herself. No wonder Tenzin ended things with you years ago. Okay, I guess this is how it's going to be. Suyin was uh, a, a really nicely, subtly handled introduction. Effectively, her character could have been done way over the top, like very gushy, very passive-aggressive, very kind of, yeah, I can see where uh, uh, Lin um, might find this annoying. But she comes on, she's actually very pleasant. She's played by Anne Heche. Uh, and uh, like I said, she could be really over the top. Um, but there's just, it's a slow, like, beginning to, oh, hang on. She's, like, really controlling. And, and like, the moment that she can't control something, she discards it. Um, not to the point where she becomes a genuinely dislikable person. But you could totally see uh, where Lynn's coming from. But also how other people wouldn't consider it to be that much of a problem. It really depends on whether that would rub you up the wrong way or not, whether you'd mind having your uh, uh, issues controlled. Yeah, I could definitely see like the like the pure frustration Lynn would feel having somebody who you know could like just grates on your nerves, but everybody else just seems to love and adore. I think what was also important was showing that Su Yin was, you know, was a very different person when Lin last saw her. Yeah. Mm. The young Su Yin, I would have, I would have hated the young yeah. Su Yin. Absolutely. <laughs> She's a little goit. The, the, the older Su Yin, um, I, I found myself getting very attached to, um, mm. she, she does have, um, 
quite a controlling personality. She she made the opposite mistake that her mother did. Her mother gave her too much freedom. Mm. She's been overly controlling with her kids. But the 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 city she's created um Zalfu yeah. it it feels like the capital city that the earth kingdom deserves yeah. rather than the one that it actually has um the introduction of Ba Sing Se is a genius piece of um, editing and uh, and using music to manipulate the uh, the uh, audience mm. because the build up is like oh we're gonna see Ba Sing Se oh isn't this exciting isn't it this brilliant and then you go over the wall and you see the poverty and. You, know, you can the feel the smell. Yeah, and the music just suddenly shifts in tone. It it mm. goes from that hopeful like build up to just misery, yeah. and and you are like, oh my god, what has happened? And then you see the upper ring, and it's even more golden and affluent than it yeah. was the last time we saw it. Yeah. And then you realize, oh god. <laughs> the Earth the Kingdom slider has been you, yanked you, hard to the right. Yeah. And then you see uh, Zalfu, and the design of the city seems almost to be complete the complete opposite of Ba Sing Se. Whereas Ba Sing Se has tons and tons of walls separating people, mm. uh, Zalfu there has this flower design that feels like it's inviting people in. Yeah. Now, ultimately, yes, it, it, it's a defense mechanism. They close at night, but there is that feeling of openness and come come we want you to experience our culture and also the fact that each district of Zalfu is connected by bridges like every every person is connected in this city and I I just I really hope that at some point in the future the power base of the earth uh, earth kingdom is in that city rather than Barsing Say yeah. because Barsing Say just the way it's set up is not a good uh role model for for the for a nation like it's all about segregation um repulsive cla- inequality yeah class systems everything that is repulsive about you know, in, imperialist cultures, mm. and Zalfu celebrates kind of a more, you know, liberal kind of utopia kind of vision for the future. Celebrating and, uh, everybody's skills and abilities as well. Yeah, it yeah. combines somehow manages to combine incredibly artistic and artful with family warmth, yeah. which is a very unusual combination. Usually, it's one or the other. I think that part of that artistic element to Zalfu is is a crucial part of what separates it from the, the more traditional inverted commas uh, earth kingdom attitude because if you you look at the inequality within the earth kingdom that is typical of um a, a very industrialized mm. um uh, culture because if what that culture produces is functional and if you think about what we've always seen the earth kingdom as being responsible for it's the it's the coal it's the uh, the bricks that create the the houses everything is very solid and it, it serves a purpose but it's not necessarily about being beautiful and uh, that's barbarism you call bending Indeed. Thank you, George Decay. <laughs> but the the idea that if you if you have um, a, an atmosphere like that, there has. 
has to be people at the bottom because there are shitty jobs there that somebody has to do in order to keep it flowing. Mm. Now, people don't stay at the bottom voluntarily. So there has to be a structure that is maintained by force if necessary to make sure that the people who do the hard graft that the people at the top don't want to do are still there in order to be able to do it. And if you look at how uh, Fu has the focus on this combination of art and craft, that was something that struck me, the idea that uh, through the delicacy that metal bending has, which is very different to what we've traditionally seen earthbenders being able to do, that they can formulate um, these incredible structures, that they can um, sculpt and dance and move and um, do things in a very refined way. Even if you extrapolate that to its extreme, when Sue, and I'm jumping way ahead here, but when Sue removes the poison from uh, Cora's body, those are the same motions that um, Katara always used for water Mm. healing. So well, that's because metal is the fluid, and uh, it, it has requires entirely different movements to earth bending, which usually requires slam, punch, well, exactly. move side. Yeah. Earth, like um, it's it's much more, um, uh, I, I suppose, simplified, and uh, you can't smash metal in that way; it'll yeah. break. Exactly, but but it it kind of it outlines the difference for me between um the the earth kingdom and and Barsing say specifically the attitude of this is how we've always done it this is how we're always going to do it and anybody who tries to um uh, to change that is going to get stepped on hard mm. to what Sue seems to have tried to create in Zaofu which is um an environment where people are encouraged to experiment uh, to to sort of open their minds to what they could achieve. Um, you know, the, if you look at the way she encourages Bolin um, in, in wanting to be a metal bender, even when it becomes pretty apparent that he's not going to be able to do that, she's still really encouraging when he finds yeah. out that he can lava bend. Metal can be moulded. Stone has to be carved. Yeah, and yeah. You, you shape it by hitting it. Yeah. All you can really control is how hard you hit it. Yeah. Yeah, just having Zafu be all about progress and culture and potential. It's even, and like you said, to even to the point where even if Bolin finds his potential and it's not the one that is necessarily that Zafu is all about or even the one that Suyin is all about, she's still super encouraging. Good, you found the thing that you're good at. You'll fit in great here. You found the thing! <laughs> now do the thing! I'm so glad Varric, the comedy quote factory, is still sticking around <laughs> yes. in book three and four. It's like, even when he first sits down and Asami asks what he's doing here, it's like, great question, Asami. I mean, what are any of us doing here? <laughs> if we go wow. back to the season two podcast, um, we were all saying, we hope Varric comes back. Now that I've seen, uh, listened to them, that episode after seeing books three and four, I can't think of how three and four would be without him. Yeah. He's, it's like he said, the universe decided to let him go. Yeah, <laughs> it's just—it's such a great vocal performance from uh, uh, John. Is it John Michael Higgins? Is yeah. his name? Yeah, it—he's it, so charismatic and full of energy, and and every line is golden. Like every everything, 
just I mean I'm skipping ahead here but the scene in book four where he's got the the timer for the bomb but also the trigger <laughs> yeah. like, well I made the timer Dude. but then I thought well you could what drag is... me away so I made the trigger but then I thought what's the use of the timer but anyway I'm covering my face <laughs> it's, it's just really good writing really clever comedy writing that do you, do you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Soccer. Like, yeah. that's who Varric reminds me of. He he kind of feels like how I'd imagine Soccer Growing in his soccer. 40s. Yeah. Yeah. The mad genius, you know. He, he's, yeah. Because we, we talk about Bolin kind of being Soccer's equivalent, but not really, because Bolin's not that bright. Mm, and he's close to Ang. Yeah. Well, no, I, I don't think younger. so. I maybe I, I the thing with bolin is he's an optimist and he's not that bright whereas soccer was a pessimist and he was incredibly bright but he was bright in a goofy fun way and that's what varick reminds me of and every time i see a scene with varick i'm like that's who soccer soccer would be if he was uh, in his later years yeah yeah these episodes in zalfu just kind of clicked in my head and reminded me that Especially when you get to the Old Wounds episode, mm. almost all of the prominent characters are just in this episode, and so many of them in this series are women. And yeah. almost all yeah. the interactions in that episode are between Lin and Suyin and Opal and Korra, with a little bit of Bolin thrown in there here and there. Yeah. And it's fantastic, and it's a wonderful episode, and it makes you just think, how hard is this, really? Like, looking at so many sectors of entertainment media that avoid this scenario like the plague, you yeah. think this was the hardest thing to do in the world. And not just women. Women of different age groups. It's yeah. easier to throw women in who are all uh, in, the, in the same peer group and in the same age group. You do a high school comedy full of horrible girls. To actually have them from different age groups and different walks of life, especially with different outlooks... I think it actually does take skill because it does require stepping outside of yourself unless you happen to have women from different age groups and walks of life on your writing team. Well, like good character interaction takes skill no matter what. And here you have a scene where like if you just ignore gender entirely, you have a scene with uh, four to five different characters with of different ages with very different outlooks on life. Yeah. Some of them clashing very strongly against each other and just a whole lot of complex character, character interaction. That part is definitely hard. I'll, uh, fully agree there having them be women is probably not as hard as i think a lot of our entertainment media make it look mm -hmm. yeah and and also there's so many older women like i know you've already brought that point up but like you don't see many women with gray hair in inter entertainment media unless they're just you know you know aunt may or something like that like yeah. it we've token got, grandma yes yeah. Suyin, Lin, Lin, Kaya, Katara, yeah, Grandma, yeah. Toph. There was that old woman in uh, uh, book two that we thought might be Azula, but wasn't. Even was... Mingwa and Pali are a little older. They're not old, gray-haired, but they're definitely yeah. like they they look mid thirties at least. Yeah, and it's just a lot of entertainment media puts pressure on women to be young and beautiful. Mm. Keep young and beautiful. It's your duty to be beautiful. Keep young, beautiful. If you want to be loved, don't fail to do your stuff with a little part and a puff. Keep young, beautiful. If you want to be loved. 
And I, I think it's so awesome to have somebody like Lin Bei Fong, who's got grey hair and two scars on her face, but embraces that, and that's yeah. just a part of who she is. It's, it's just a really positive role model to have on screen. Oh, one more thing from a uh, an earlier episode, Josh, uh, was that you hoped you could find out what the uh, origin of Lin's scars was. Yeah. And there you go. And I, I think that's a brilliant explanation, because... Um, uh, you know, the theories I came up with, uh, with was like this epic battle between <laughs> her and some strong, uh, stronger uh, bender or what have you. But having it be so personal and intimate yeah. um, says a lot about her character and, and it gives that, that that scar a lot of symbolic value to her. Yeah. Like that, this is not just a scar this is a tear in her family like that she's only manages to repair in this season yeah it's a lot better of an explanation than it didn't work out Okay, so any more duty and responsibility? Because we could do a freaking podcast just on that, I think. Just speaking of current state of nations, mm. how do you suppose the Northern Water Tribe's been going under Eska and Desna's rule? I would guess dreary. Yeah. Yeah. They're not they the most energetic been, of monarchs. I think <laughs> not they a lot just of parties. leave everybody to do everything that they're normally doing and just leave out of it. Yeah, that's so gauche. Why didn't we ha- anybody tell us we had this little secret jail we could be throwing people in? <laughs> mm. Something tells me somebody did, and they just weren't paying attention. <laughs> I, I frankly could have done with more, at least uh, Eska for two more seasons. Yeah, frankly. I love all I, I, I really enjoy their bit. <laughs> yeah, pairing. Actually, speaking of that, we can mention Zuko here, um, played by what's his name. Bruce Davidson. Bruce Davidson, right. Bruce Davidson is an old man. He turned up in X-Men and he was an old man. And he uh, opened his mouth and all I heard coming out of it was, I'm an old man. And so it was like, oh my God, we're finally going to get to see Zuko. And he said, opened his mouth and went, I'm an old man. I was like, what? A- any more of that? No, I'm an old man. All right, bye. Whoa. Compare that with my heart leaping into the sky when Uncle turned up at the end of season two. He's not terrible. He's just mediocre. (laughs) But it's not just um, his performance, though. They kind of underplayed his introduction. You compare that to Toph's introduction in book four, where there's this huge build-up. But I like, I like his daughter turns up in season four. It's like, oh my god, this is the current reigning firelord. It's my daughter. Okay, moving on. What? Characterize her. But, Violation, um, somewhat hard done by in this series, in this whole series, all of Korra. I think maybe the argument could be made that they're all Violation doubt. Well, it's we've got three seasons of another show that are very, very focused mm. on the Fire Nation. In fact, the culture. whole of, of season three basically is almost entirely yeah. Fire Nation. But yeah. just yeah, like it, some things happened there. We got Water Tribe, we got Air Nomads. Yeah, bit like one episode of the Fire Nation. Come it would have been good seeing how the Fire Nation is faring now, just because it's been so interesting seeing yeah. what the other nations are doing, seeing how Bossing Say has changed 
depressingly little, actually, and has in some ways gotten very worse. Yeah. But then also seeing how Zalfu has sprung up and and represents the best of what the Earth nation yeah. can be. And what it did Zuko do in response to his father's actions? In response to Azula's yeah. actions? Maybe he brought back Flamio. Flamio Hotman. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see if they just went back <laughs> further back and brought back their own bingo. And the, the irony is, like, again, my heart leapt into the sky when I heard Dante Basco as um, General Iroh at the end of season one. That was huge. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe, it, it, I know it sounds weird, but maybe have... No, no, because they haven't done that with anyone else. I was going to say maybe have Dante Basco voice the old Zuko, but no, just a scene... Like, uh, what's Zuko's standout scene in this, in The Legend of Korra? Well, I would point to the scene where uh, Korra says... Uncle, yeah. You mentions Uncle, and you see the, the face that Zuko pulls after yeah. that. and that's about but it. But that's, that's the animation team. That's, that's not voice acting. Yeah. Um, Good old studio, I, I, yeah. I, I do like the idea that Zuko has chilled out in mm. older in his later years because that is a common you know that is a common thing that happens people who are angry in the first of their life tend to cool off in yeah. the, their later years in which case just um, one idiosyncrasy would be cool like yeah. uh, let's just have some jasmine tea just a little something just a yeah, yeah I, I, again i'm not saying I, I we were entitled to it it just would have been a good idea yeah they came out of nowhere. I'm so sorry, Lord Zuko. How could you let this happen? They caught us by surprise. And Zaheer is an airbender now. No, this can't be. Do you have any idea the power these criminals possess? Individually, they could take down any bender. Put them all together, they could take down the entire world. And now you're telling me their leader is an airbender? We can track them. We don't need to track them. I know exactly where they're going. Notify the new chiefs of the Northern Water Tribe that an attack on their prison is imminent, and send word to Lin Beifong in Republic City. The Avatar must be protected. Where are you going? To stop them. Anarchy, freedom, and control. So, Josh, I know you got stuff to say on this one. <laughs> how are how, how these three explored throughout this series? Um, b- before I jump straight into this, um, to what's going to be a twenty-minute monologue? Yeah, without. I, I think I, I think it's important to mention one of our big complaints. Uh, about book two, which was the antagonist. Unalok, mm. almost universally, it seems, is hated by most people. Um, even, like, the creators of the show have even gone so far as to mock him mm. in book four. So it's pretty clear. I, I don't feel like I'm say, saying something controversial yeah. by saying that Unalok kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, and we, I, we even suggested a good way that he could have been really excellent yeah. as a, uh, an antagonist by basically having good yeah. ideals for the world. And then when he realizes that Vartu's intentions are entirely on destruction to, to go back on it and, 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 and regret deeply his, the course of his actions as he is taken over 
That would have been great, but instead it was just like, A thousand years of darkness, Avatar! I should be the evil Avatar! And I shall twiddle my moustache. Um, That's exactly what I said. (laughs) Um, So, going into book three, I was afraid that Amon was going to be this one-off. Like, he was this great antagonist who was really well fleshed out and had a clear motivation and was tragic and, and, and all of that stuff. And I was worried that Unalok was a sign of things to come, that we were just going to drift further and further away from that. So I am so pleased, so pleased that Zaheer is the primary antagonist of this season. This is a character with so much depth and, and, and just he, his motivation is something that we, late to because we have seen the destruction of the people he considers evil in the world they show you the the stuff that the earth queen is doing they show you how idiotic the president is and then when zahir says look these people are awful don't you think the world would be better off without them Mm. a part of you is going well yes we've seen what happens when the earth queen gets her way yeah now Ultimately, I completely disagree with Zahir's methods, mm. but just having that, that, that part of your brain that goes, he does kind of have a point, makes him so much more relatable and, and um, just more fascinating as a character than Unalok ever was for the entire length of book two. Um, having anarchy as the central motivation of an antagonist Mm. and having that connected to a culture that up until this has kind of been the one noble culture in this universe. Because think about it, up until this point, Mm. the air nomad culture has kind of been like the good guys. Like, Like Aang has kind of been... Our only uh, Ang and Tenzin and 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 all of that lot have kind of been our only examples of this culture, and they're all characters we love and 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 are super attached to. Zahir is showing us the darker side of the air nomad culture. This anarchist belief that that there shouldn't be these power structures that that. Uh, I realise that I may have said a, made a controversial uh, statement by insinuating that anarchy is somehow dark. Yeah, uh, was, yeah. sorry, uh, sorry, anyone who's an anarchist. Um, but like, <laughs> but um, it's more how far he's willing to go to achieve this goal, um, and we're we're seeing kind of the ruthless pragmatism of 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 somebody from who embraces this culture. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I, I'm going on a bit. I, no, no, I'll let going. somebody else talk. But um, I, I did just want to say something there about the idea of, of anarchy not being intrinsically evil, which I think more than anything else, Zahir's position, um, and it does come from the uh, the old everybody thinks they're righteous idea. Yeah. That's why he sells so well as a villain, because yeah. he thinks that what he's doing is good. If you've got someone who's, I am evil and I will take over the world and I will control everything, and they know that's what they want to do, how does that convince as as a person that that's not real and you can't be truly afraid of something that's not real? So the fact that Zahir has this... 
at this ideal that he wants the world to be able to fulfill is is presenting this this idea which uh, actually struck me while we were watching the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring today, but it, it fits perfectly well with this as well. There is no ideology which is intrinsically evil. Yeah. What is what is harmful is how far you take that ideology. And although yes, you can't say that anarchy itself is an evil thing, wanting to impose anarchy yeah, yeah. on the world—that's when you start to take it too far. And that's what what clicked it for me with Zaire was the idea that he has um, even before he received airbending it appears he was um, fixated on the air nomad culture and the uh, this guru that he seems to have been studying for a long time because when he suddenly gets these airbending powers he's way too good for that to have suddenly come out of nowhere mm. he's been studying this for a long time this is something that he is obviously um, very enamored of and and um, almost worshipful of and yet he is willing to put the entire collection of air nomads that exists in mortal danger if it means he can achieve his aims yeah one other thing that uh, i find really fascinating about zahir is the idea that he's kind of a an example of ang if Ang made the opposite decisions he made in the original series. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. Thank yeah. you, it was, Yeah, to do yes. with the guru. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 When, that, that, yeah. Sharon, in fact, Sharon, you even asked, was that the same guru? No, uh, well, I, I Raheem just, lived thousand years ago or something like that. But but yeah, yeah. The, the fact but you'd that, imagine gurus had very similar viewpoints on things. But it's the fact that Zaire uses those exact words, I have dropped the last of my earthly tethers. Yeah. And yeah, let yeah. go, you know, my connection to the earth is gone. And it just happens to coincide with the fact that Pali has been uh, killed and yeah. she was his last tether. Yeah. And it's 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 absolutely mirroring uh, the scene at the end of uh, Book Two Earth, Earth. Uh, of the original series. Uh, Ang was up on a giant peak with a guru, and the decision was ultimate power or the pe- the person you love. Yeah. And Ang chooses the person he loves. And Iroh very wisely says, "I I you know I think you're wise to choose happiness over power I think power is overrated mm. and I think that's a central theme of both these series is that yeah. ultimately your relationships are way more powerful than any kind of actual physical power you can obtain um, and yeah uh, Zahir the choice is kind of taken out of his hands by Su Yin but it is the same situation his love his love is taken away from him he is no longer attached to the earth the way he was and now he has access to this power that otherwise he wouldn't have had um and not only that but uh, also his willingness to kill people if he believes it's for the greater good mm. um ang drew a line at taking the Fire Lord's life. Yeah. Like, he acknowledged that, yes, the world is probably a better place without this asshole, but ultimately, I can't do that because I need to be better than that person. Yeah. Zaheer 
just sees it as serving a greater purpose. I am willing. It's not about this. me. Yeah. It's not about me. I am willing to commit this evil if it means that the world is a better place. Yeah. But what people who make those decisions and, and see things or char- characters, should I say, having not really known anybody who has been put in that situation in real life, um, characters who, who tend to do that and say, I will cross this line because it achieves what you know this thing that I consider to be far more important than that. What they seem to um, to not realise is that you once you've crossed those lines, you can never ever go back. It's not yeah. a case of you'll cross the line, but then it'll never happen again. Because once that line's crossed, then it's the next line and the next line and the next line and the next line. And the fact is that once you cross one it's far easier to cross the next one and again this idea that that seeking power and any form of control that you want to have over others is dangerous and it's it's the fact it the reason for that is because you have to be willing to cross certain lines of judgment that you can never, ever go back on. And the I think part of the reason why we are conditioned to see the air nomads as, as traditionally the heroes is because when we first encountered them, they're victims. There's only one of them left. They've been utterly destroyed. Mm. And since then, whenever we've met new ones, they've always been on the back foot. They're always in the minority. Um, you know, they're always put in a position where... Uh, they're, they're having to fight to get the basics of what everybody else around them has already. Yeah. You know, their their territory, their culture back, their um, even their bending abilities are something that have only really just started to become a big thing again. Mm. Um, and I think the it, that still follows with Zaire because the circle, if you like, of of control and being controlled it's all connected together the idea that if you are totally under the control of of other people that's not good and you as you move away from that and you start to have um control and control of and responsibility for yourself and your own life Mm. that's kind of the balance point that that really is is what people seem to be aiming for in order to achieve happiness but then if you swing past that and if you start to move towards not only will nobody ever control me again I must have control of other people in order to prevent myself from ever being placed under other people's control and I think Zaire's years in the in the prison have probably enhanced that resentment in him and and you know brought him to a place where he really is willing to do absolutely anything necessary in order to achieve his aims. I, I, I think there's a scene um, after assassinated um, the Earth Queen that really sums up Zaheer for me, mm-hmm. where he goes into the radio station and says, can I, can I please use this radio to contact the whole of Ba Sing Se? And the guy says, no, and ming lifts him up. Like, do you really want to mess with this guy? He just took out the Earth Queen. Mm. And Zaheer puts his, ha- puts his hand on her shoulder and says, no, stop. We're here to help people like him. Mm. And then when he goes on to give his speech, he doesn't give his name. He says, I, I don't want glory. You know, I, I, I think you're fed up of people trying to, con- you know, control you and, and uh, you know, grab glory themselves. I want to give you the city mm. and not claim glory for myself. I this think, is the character I wish Bane had, had stayed being. 
I I think Zaheer is the character Bane should have been. Absolutely. Um, He he because he he is so altruistic, or at least believes he's so altruistic. It helps you somewhat sympathize with what he's trying to do, Um, and. I find it really hard, despite all the awful... Zaheer does some absolutely horrendous things in this season, but I find it really hard to despise him because at, at, the, at his core, he is doing this for other people, or at least he believes he's doing it for other people. Um, it makes him more like a character like uh, Magneto for me um yeah. he's he's that kind of character uh somebody who believes he is serving the greater good but willing to commit evils in order to accomplish that have you ever read the poetry of the great airbending guru lahima <laughs> he's a i love that he is a more than worthy successor antagonist to Amon, but functionally he is really really different because Amon is all about a certain degree of mystery and a bit of a deception to pull off what he needs to do and a surface-level menace as well with a scary mask and imposing figure, a really deep Steve Bloom voice. Yeah. But But when when he gets taken off, he goes... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But Zaheer, it, it, in fact, it requires a... Tarlock to really legitimize Amon at the end there, to give them that ending together. Yeah. Sorry, Zaheer has a really normal voice actually when you think about it. like there is not a deep graveliness to him he is not an mm. impo- he's an imposing figure because of what he ends up representing just as an i just his ideals and his capability but, but he's not, not trying he's just, to be super dramatic and threatening or mysterious i mean there's no grand deception to him mm. at all he, he he's operates not yeah. he operates stealthily because he the has to but, but he doesn't have to hide what he's trying to accomplish from anybody he aman had to to achieve his goals, he had to win public support. He had mm. to win the crowd over. He had to put on a he show. Wasn't, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody, and he made that very clear. And he didn't want to hurt it or kill anybody, but he needed to win public support. Zaheer does not need public support. He doesn't even need a position of power. He just has to strike from the shadows, mm. eliminate the world's leaders, and watch his vision of natural order just take its natural course. Mm. He, I mean, he's completely open about his goals even to Korra. He will just straight up tell you, this is what I'm trying to do, and I'm not doing it in a monologuing villain way like, you can't stop me. I'm just saying, this is what I'm trying to do. You can try to stop me, but I am not going to let you. Yeah. And he is I, more than willing to kill somebody who gets in the way of his goal. So when he targets somebody, when he targets Tenzin and the airbenders to lure Korra out, you mm-hmm. genuinely fear he is going to kill somebody you care about. I, I, I feel to mention Henry Rollins because his performance as Zaheer is really different from what we've come to expect from uh, animated television. Uh, yeah. he, he is so controlled and reserved in his performance that like you could the, there are several scenes throughout where you could see a lesser actor hamming it up and Rollins never goes down that road. He's always natural in his delivery. Um, and, and also, a of applause to the casting director, because Henry Rollins is a punk rocker. And <laughs> casting, casting a anti-establishment punk rocker in the role of your you know, Buddhist anarchist monk yeah. is just the stroke of genius as far as I'm concerned. 
but it, it it his voice is different enough from what you expect that it even though like it works really well in his favor when you first hear it it takes you off guard a little bit yes. you yeah. see this old looking guy with like gray hair long hair long beard and he starts talking and you start thinking you kind of sound like will wheaton but then <laughs> i think it just works to humanize him so much he's not a big domineering frightening force and i think the fact that they also do so much to humanize his group the people with him mm. throughout the time and that there's a level of confidence to the writing in this series especially, that, and this season especially, mm. that they managed to make Zaheer's crew seem so imposing and threatening, but they also allow them to be funny and casual. Like when they'll sweep in like a strike team and stage an amazing jailbreak, but still have this little bit of beat of awkwardness in the truck when Zaheer and Pali kiss, and That's the other two are just kind of sitting yeah. there. Seriously, like, really? now? Get a room. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's humanizing, but it doesn't undercut the threat that they yeah. represent. Like, I love that Bolin's bit of small talk with Minghua and Gazan in the truck. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that they're willing to humanize this cast of villains as much as they do and give Zaheer and Pali a genuine, caring relationship. And you can see the connection between these two. They care about each other yeah. in a very genuine way. And Minghua and Gazan can be casually funny. I mean, after a character like Unalak, it is the most welcome change in the world. Definitely, yeah. I think that shows great confidence in your villains, though, because if you... Uh, antagonists. Sorry, antagonists. If you know that you can give them scenes like that and it's not going to undercut the threat that they represent, mm. then you know you've written them well. Yeah. Two out of three, I, not bad. I like how um, even Zaheer's accompl- accomplices view other people they're just people Mm. you might be in our way but it doesn't mean that you're not people yeah there was one bit where uh when they corner tenzin and then they basically just beat the crap out of him and i thought they're gonna kill him here there was a coldness to them of of doing that that they could maybe have backed up on and just had to hear say we're not gonna stop uh you're gonna just stand down we don't want to do this. And then basically just having to and, and feeling um, just a slightly less utterly like it wasn't sadistic, but uh, it seemed slightly different to the rest of their behavior. They do have a coldness about them that mm. like there is no there's no sadistic urge to what they do. It's, yeah, it's that cold calculating like this is this is something that's gonna, just going to happen. Like that is what's more disturbing than someone who's seeking your harm it's someone who is doing it because they think it has to be done yeah they have a drive and a will to like they're go. it's the reason they're willing to kill people to get to achieve what they want they have a goal and if someone stands in the way of that goal they're going to make sure they get that person out of the way and they do they hit tenzin and knock him down multiple times and tenzin keeps getting back up and i think i mean i took that part where they're just starting to hit him at just over and over as a sort of a realization we have two forces of will meeting each other that are not going to stop. Yeah. He's going to keep getting up. We need to disable. We don't necessarily need to kill him, but I mean, and I thought they were going to kill him too, but we need to basically incapacitate him to where he cannot stand up anymore. Yeah. That might've been uh, better to just have as a brief conversation of like, you know, uh, uh, Tenzin and uh, Zahir go at it one-on-one and eventually it becomes apparent that Tenzin is not going to back down. Zahir says to the others, we take him down 
but in a, in a kind of just do it as quickly as possible without having to beat him repeatedly against the wall. There was a certain sadism in that. Also within the moment with the bowling, like the the time Mingua was locked up, she was to entertain herself. She essentially humanized the people who were keeping her there. She made up little stories for the guards. Yeah. And it's just those little moments that these are still people. No matter how much you hate what they do and who they are, they are mm. still people. Yeah. Well, while we're on the subject of Mingwa, I think uh, it's it's really uh, she, she's one really of my brave, characters. really brave to have uh, a character who has amputations uh, in a children's TV series because yeah. um, I, I personally. I haven't encountered that in a children's animated show before. Yeah. Um, we, we've certainly had disabilities uh, in this series uh, several times. The, uh, the, the inventor as well yeah. as Toph, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There's a recurring theme uh, in the original series and this of overcoming your mm. weakness and making your weakness a strength. Yeah. Toph being the big example in the original series but having Mingwa you know forming these water arms and then becoming so lethal yeah. and so dangerous yeah. she becomes um, an octopus at one point yeah and and that's one of the most iconic images of this season as well her rising up from yeah. the, the side of the cliff with her many arms and because she and, can yeah and I, I I really respect a lot of the decisions, and we're going to get onto that with book four, uh, a lot of the brave decisions the writers made with characters in both of these seasons. Yeah, they definitely seem to, they get across the um, message that um, disability can breed ingenuity, like the ability to overcome something yeah. make some, make, can make someone far, far better at other things than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah limitations make you creative and that yeah. creativity can create new powers yeah in this case one of the coolest bending styles yeah. <laughs> this show probably has ever introduced yeah. she is awesome never before have i thought i kind of wish i did have arms <laughs> <laughs> if i could do that you'd also need bending that if i could do that then i probably would it would be better to not have arms okay <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thought but that's how much that's how much of an impression their powers left on me. The choreography in this season, um mm. we're talking about Ming Wah, just the fight between her and uh Kaya, um mm. just her rotating and spinning those arms and and having Kaya just barely dodge these blades. It made water bending feel so deadly in a way yeah. that um we, it, ha it has felt like that in the past but it's felt like a long time since we've seen that end of season um, one when uh, uh ang went up against that but you know in fact katara went up against that bending master yeah it, it starts it, throwing it, out spikes blood bending almost i feel is although it is water bending i kind of in my head view it as a different thing it's more like um, person bending yeah, it's more like person bending, whereas this style that Mingwar is using, it, there's a lot of slicing and cutting and using ice uh, as like knives and daggers as kind of reminiscent of the T-1000 in uh, Terminator 2. Nice. The, the, that feeling that uh, this, you know, this very fluid and fast substance can suddenly become hard and sharp and deadly. Um, but not only Ming Hua, like the the fight choreography in the final moments of uh, this show between Zahir and Cora yeah. is some of the best 
fight choreography I've seen on television, to be frank. Um, uh, the way the camera uh, feels like it's flying alongside Cora and Zaheer as they battle through the air. I, I frankly have my jaw on the floor at certain sequences. I think there's like a 20-second shot where the camera is zooming in and zooming out and zooming in constantly, and and you feel like it's a, like a drone shot, like an aerial shot of these two fighting each other. Um it's the it's the best action sequence I I think I've seen in this entire universe. It's it's really well done. I think the only action sequence that was uh, more engaging to me was Zuko versus Azula at the end of Fire because yeah. that was so personal. Yeah, and it just had that 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 somber quality to the music and the uh, the almost like it everything about that uh, was inevitable. And there was a sadness to it, um, but the, uh, the 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 there was a fear to this one. Even watching it again, when you know the outcome, this 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 worry about Korra and just the no, knowing that the damage has been done to her, and and that it doesn't matter that she gets through it because it's going to leave a serious, lasting effect. Um, we'll talk, we'll definitely talk about more about the the ending nearer the ending of this podcast. End of book three, part one. Part two will be out next week. You know, being locked away for so many years, I was beginning to lose hope. But when I awoke with airbending, I knew I would be the one to destroy the old world and plant seeds for a new world to flourish. Zaheer, please. As an airbender, you could help make a positive difference in the world instead of destroying it. You are a very smart young woman, Cora. But you must realize that once change begins, it cannot be stopped, even by the Avatar. Enough with your philosophical mumbo-jumbo. I want to know one thing. If you do capture me, what are you going to do with me? You'll have that answer soon enough. The Red Lotus should have you by now. See you in the physical world. See you! Part 2 Ugh! Ugh! We have to find a way out of this prison before we get to the Earth Queen. Don't worry, I have a plan. These airships that Cabbage Corp sold to the Earth Kingdom are way cheaper than the ones Future Industries built. Buckle up, jackies, cause we got a rocket band. The little flying crazy, cause we can. Three, keep your body, punch your cheek, your feathers, make your pants dance. Now that's just shoddy workmanship. Just to go back to the thing about Ming-Hua uh, being able to... Uh, overcome her disability and and her limitations and turning them into a an advantage the polar opposite is the earth queen somebody who's never been limited in any way is if effectively when all of her yes men disappear she has no power whatsoever yeah and uh, so uh, i noticed that there were rose motifs on her uh, uh, hat and they deliberately made her like the Queen of Hearts so that you'd know exactly where you were with her. And there's, there was like, there's no more to this woman than this. So um, you can uh, disassemble from that how the Earth Kingdom has gone downhill as a result for a hell of a lot of people. Unless you're in the 1%, in which case, in a ring, smell nice. Um, but when Zaheer actually murders her on screen, possibly... Is that the first on-screen death in Avatar? I... Um. I think so. There's a lot of suggested death in Avatar, but yeah. I think this is the, the first. first one that they've outright killed somebody. On they didn't say killed; they say took out, and a couple of other. They were they were careful about how they flagged it, 
but it's apparent to all the adults in the room, he kills her. And um, I felt sorry for this awful woman. I forget at the end of season one, mm-hmm. water. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Je- um, Admiral Zhao dies. Mm. Yeah, because it's a similar thing where he he's drowned within a clump of water, whereas this one, it's far more, it's far more effective because it's so. I thought that waterbender like, hit squad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so enclosed because it's this little like you can feel the physical terror in her eyes. Yeah. The same terror is is in Cora's eyes at the end. It's they've got that like the intensity of that moment, and the fact that it's airbending this incredibly evasive, gentle uh, form of you know just sort of you can shove people around with it, but it's it's never really been used to genuinely harm, certainly not to kill before. So it really tech comes out of nowhere. Yeah, like, like in the in the series history. Lots of elements. Most of the elements have been shown to have some twisted, uglier use. Like yeah. firebending can be pure and even cleansing, but can very easily be used as a purely destructive, chaotic force. Yeah. Waterbending, which is usually great for di- disabling without harming somebody or healing, can also be used to bend the water and blood right within somebody. And I guess this is airbending, which is just the power to pull the air right out of somebody's lungs and suffocate them. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I always have talk about nasty airbending, Milo. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I always had the uh, different thoughts of how they'd make airbending. Since I was thinking more like a razor shop, like literally cutting people with the wind. Yeah. But like they took it in a completely different direction of like that suffocation is such a primal fear that yeah. it's easy to relate to. Like I myself, because I'm mathematic, I have I've experienced the point where you just can't catch your breath and having Jeez. like that is that is a terrifying feeling. Yeah, yeah, and it 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 also like all the way through the original series, I I, I heard fans saying, uh, "Why can't Ang just rip?" Uh, air out of people's lungs he should be the most powerful blah 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 the the fact is we've never ever encountered an airbender who would be willing to go this far up until this point so it absolutely makes sense that zaheer is the first person we encounter who is willing to twist airbending in this way uh to make it lethal this is more a meta theme of the entire show I, i for me, and I think for a lot of people, book three was a turning point in that um, it became a lot clearer what the grander themes of Cora were. And uh, one of them, uh, which Sharon's already brought up, was the idea of questioning what purpose the Avatar has in this modern age. Mm. But another one is exploring these political ideas with all of these villains with each villain representing a different uh, political um, uh, motivation a, a political extreme Amon obviously being communism um, Unalok is kind of the rubbish one but he's I, I think he represents religious uh, like a, a religious oligarchy um, allegory is no, oligarchy. Oligarchy. Oh, oligarchy. Jesus. Okay, sorry. Uh, I've never heard that word before. <laughs> sorry. What does oligarchy mean? It's um, it's kind of like one person being in charge by not exactly define, uh, divine right, and it's not exactly the same thing as, as sort of a, a kingship where it's 
by birthright, but it's. Mm-hmm. I think it's got something to do with um, the person with the most money being in charge or, or the it's, most it's, power. It's, I, it's more to do with religion. So the Pope would be an example yeah, of like right. a power structure. So a super on. evil magic Pope. Yeah, basically. Or Dalai Lama, super evil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, and then we with have... the Avatar side of things. Yeah. And then we have Zaheer, who represents anarchy, and then we end with uh, Kuvira, who feels like uh, we're returning to the political fascism. idea that, were, that was explored in the original series, which was yeah. fascism. Yeah. Um, and that is... I've never seen that in a children's TV show before. Yeah. Um, kind of presenting politics to children. Um, I think, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I personally, I, I feel the original steer- series is still kind of my favourite out of the two. But the one thing I would give point to and say this is what Cora has going in its favour is that it's a lot more brave in terms of the content it explores. Um, <laughs> it's not entirely brave. The evil capitalist actually turns out to be a nice and very funny guy. Well, true. <laughs> something tells me that wasn't the case when they begot, but when they started. Yeah, but they were like, we just love this performance so much, we got to keep them on. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that was the case. This is interesting, especially because you were on the Bioshock episode, uh, Josh. But uh, what Zahir was talking about, uh, how you would only have a, a duty and inheritance to yourself and your loved ones, sounds a little bit unrandian. So it's like both polar ends of the spectrum. You got super capitalism, which is uh, uh, what was Anne Rand's again? Uh, uh, objectivism. Ayn Rand was uh, was uh, objectivism. And then, like, if you if you on a, faces on a clock, you just go all the way around the clock to anarchy, and then just trip back over into objectivism. At both ends of the scale, you only care about yourself, and you're a complete dick to everybody else. Well, it, it's it's the truth that neither side of left or right wants to acknowledge. That yeah. is, if if you push left wing politics and right wing politics to their extreme, they yeah. end up looking quite similar. Um, when I was playing um, uh, Shadow Complex. I, I realized uh, after a while that Orson Scott Card was making out that these cobras I've been fighting were super, super left wing. And I was like, well, they, they really seem super, super right wing to me. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's the same flipping thing. <laughs> Now, we've kind of covered family and frustration when we went back to uh, uh, Sue and Lynn. Is there any more to add to that one? I mean, the the point where uh, Lynn says to Sue at the end, I love you, I did not realize how much that was going to affect me. But um, I realized uh, in a heartbeat that she'd never said that to uh, Sue in her life. And Sharon noted she's probably never said that to anyone in her life, maybe not even Tenzin. Pretty sure she's never said it to Tenzin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a huge turnaround. And obviously Lynn goes through through that, and it's it's almost like they, they needed to have this fight years ago. Yeah. It's, it's kind of healthy. I don't think it's necessarily just the fight, though. I think it's what precedes it, because there's a lot of stuff that... Being able to call each other on their shit. Within Lynn specifically, I mean. Mm. I think that the a lot of her resentment for Sue, she's squashed. 
to the point where she, I don't think she even really knows the lengths it goes to and certainly wouldn't be able to verbalize it. I think that's why it's necessary that it does come out in the fight because that's literally the only way that Lynn is ever going to be able to express it. But to express it, first of all, she's got to remember it. And that whole section where she's going through that process of, of recalling these events. Oh, I loved that so much. Yeah. The, the best bit being when she walks out of the room totally serene having gone through that horrendous night of, of working through it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is such a great season for Lynn. Yeah. We were, yeah, we were lamenting the complete lack of Lynn in season two. Yeah. And I feel um, the scene that kind of sums up Lynn for me is when uh, Cora tries to get Opal to talk to Lynn and Lynn's immediate reaction is anger and uh, and rejection, and she's angry and aggressive all the way up until the point where everyone else has left the room, and when she's on her own, she's crying, and that spoke to a depression inside Lynn that she was not willing to share with anyone, and that the entire episode, uh, Old Wounds, I think was trying to get Lynn to come face to face with the sadness that she's try- desperately trying to hide from everyone else. Now, she's still a person at the end of the day. She, she doesn't stop being uh, Lynn, but she seems to embrace sharing her feelings with other people after this episode. The conversation she has with Opal, where she kind of opens up about how difficult it is for her to see uh, Su Yin with this happy family, and how that was their childhood was nothing like that. Like that, she it's really difficult for her to see all that. It's a big, it's a big step for her to finally open up to other people about what she's been feeling all this time. I think you were right, Sharon, that her. Resentment of Sue had condensed into this impenetrable just stress that even she didn't understand anymore, mm. but that she doesn't know how to deal with or can't even really remember exactly what it came from or why it bothers her. But it makes her to, to the point where she'll just lash out at Opal for no reason. Mm. Like she has n- literally nothing against Opal other than Opal is attached to this person that causes this stress Lynn doesn't understand anymore. Mm. I think and that she just a- needs this whole thing to unpack it. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of a um, uh, an anger at the relationship that Sue and Opal have as well, at least mm, the way yeah. that Lynn perceives it at that point, because I, she, right. she's an older sister with a younger sister, and she's seen her, she's obviously spent her whole life trying to emulate her mother in order to win her approval and her pride. She sees Sue doing exactly the opposite, going out and doing exactly what she wants to do, to the point where she, in Lynn's eyes, ruins Toff's life and forces her to make a decision that she doesn't think that she would ever have made. Whether Toff actually would have done or not is kind of irrelevant at this point because it's about Lynn's perception of it and despite Sue having done that she never sees she never gets any consequences of it 
she doesn't um uh she doesn't suffer for it really to any great extent she doesn't um apologize for it she doesn't realize that what she's done is a horrendous thing and spend the rest of her life regretting it and trying to make amends for it and more to the point she has this daughter who she obviously has a very close and caring relationship with. Mm -hmm. She has this whole family, in fact, that she has a very close and caring relationship with, which Lynn does not have. And as far as she's concerned at this point, will never have. So having thrown everything into trying to be the perfect daughter, Sue's the one who's got all the, the benefits and the resentment that comes from that. Again, something that's so deep and so long lasting um, and starts so early that it can't be articulated because it's, it's an anger at somebody for being simply who they are. And yet at the same time, it being somebody that you love and wouldn't want them to be any different because then they wouldn't be the person that you love. And how do you untie all of that without just throwing rocks at them? <laughs> <laughs> and metal. Don't forget well, metal. Yes. Well put. How often do you actually hear siblings on TV actually tell each other they love them? I feel like I don't see that very much. How often do you see siblings acting like siblings in, in general? Because most of the time they either make it like the worst thing ever or the best relationship you can ever have. Yeah. it's so a lot True. of them acting like old friends, but uh, less... Sibs. One thing I've been really, really impressed with the writing in this, this, um, the the whole block, frankly, but Cora more so, is that they have explored um, psychological thought processes in a way that manages to be both dramatic and yet real. Mm. Um, and accessible is, to kids as well. Somehow, and, Lyra yeah, got absolutely. everything about this. She did. She really did. But uh, like I said about that moment when Lynn comes out of the room incredibly serene, at the same time, that isn't a moment of, and now everything from here on in will be perfect. She still has all of that stuff to deal with. It's just that now she's reached a place where she can actually start attempting to deal with. And it, what we will obviously go into later on um Cora dealing with the aftermath of what happens in this series mm. there is no great catharsis and suddenly everything is wonderful there's always this idea that having um having experienced such intense uh, traumatic events that leaves echoes no matter how much healing you do no matter how much time elapses those things have happened and the consequences of them will always have happened mm. i guess i'm not surprised that toff wasn't the best parent in the world yeah no but it would have been so easy a, a, a poorer writing team mm-hmm. would have found it so easy to fall into the everybody thought Toff was awesome, let's make her in the later older self awesome too. No, she is flawed. She is she has behaved in messed up ways. She's done things through selfishness and not thinking about things hard enough. Mm. And she's been you know dismissive and you know done. Things that you wouldn't 
want this character that you thought was awesome to do. But the fact that she does makes her more real and more relatable and more three-dimensional. Yeah. I think more importantly is that I absolutely can character I saw in the original series making these decisions. Because yeah. mm. Toph wasn't, you know... She wasn't the, the best tool for every situation. Yeah, she was a fantastic warrior. Yeah. Uh, mm. When it came to combat, she excelled. But in social situations, she was quite flawed. Like, she's blunt, she's, she's not considerate of people's feelings. And Won't clean up after herself, can't even fix her yeah. hair in the morning. Yeah, and she could read Earth, but God damn it, can she not read people? Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, yeah, I can see her being kind of a terrible mother. Whereas Katara, who showed uh, a great deal of uh, maternal instincts in mm. the original and series, and ended up being a great mother. So yeah, it, it just it makes sense when you view the characters as they were. It makes sense for them to have developed the way they have in this series. Oh, man. Oh, I think I slipped a disc sleeping here. It's been a while since we spent the night on a trash pile. It's about how I remembered. I bet everyone's freaking out that we've been gone all night. I'm worried about Kai. He's just a little kid out there on his own. He's probably really scared. Your breakfast, Master Fong. Keep the change. I love bossing, say. Kai is a new uh, character who actually kind of reminded me of a, a slightly more uh, roguish Ang, and I, I frankly could have done with more, even more of him in the uh, series and, and in the next one because he he felt refreshingly offhand for an Airbender. I would say the combination of Kai and Janora yeah. is the, the replication of, of who Aang was. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice combo. Uh, also, I suppose if you sort of uh, c- combine them, it's not exactly the same dynamic as uh, Aang and Katara, but they have that kind of uh, energy to them. They bounce off each other very well. I also like how um, he plays off Mako. Like, Mako's the one of the f- only people who sees through him. Like, he's been where he's been. Like, he's know- he knows exactly what's going through his head because he's been there before. And the fact that he's, he's like, when, he, when, he, when everybody else accepts, like, I know what you're up to. Like, you're not going to get anything past me. Like, I'm on to you. Yeah. Like, the fact that Kai sort of has to contend with that also helps with it. With like his own development, the fact that because he wants to be close to Janora, but like when you've got someone against you, like you have to prove yourself. Part of his significance, I think, as well, is bringing out the teacher element of Cora, because when he first turns up um, and they have that moment where he's about to be taken away, she says, "Who can give him better guidance than we can?" And she's including herself in that. She's starting to step up to the plate mm. of being the adult avatar, the person whose role it is to pass on her lessons of balance to the rest of the world. It's testament to the quality of the range of characters in this that Bolin is one of my favourite characters in the whole of the Avatar series, and there are still about eight characters before him in terms of my favourite characters. 
There's yeah. just so many great ones. And he is so consistently excellent and funny in this. For some reason in season two, and maybe a little bit in season four, he's off doing his movers and he's hanging out with Kavira and he's less engaging. But in season three, he is on fire in terms of just basically um, being there to keep the optimistic side of Team Avatar going and to say funny, silly things, uh, but to basically be this like the great big heart that's irrepressible and that you don't want, you don't want to ever really lose its pace. It's yeah. uh, he, he kind of, it feels like a lot of the, the lightness and the energy of this series runs parallel with Bolin. I don't know why just, just this particular season. I think it's true. I, mean, I love his razzle dazzle recruiting show mm. when they decide that Tenzin's, for whatever reason, cold calls at the door <laughs> aren't working. <laughs> complete that, with ringleader moustache from Victorian times. Yeah. And, and with Mako's complete lack of enthusiasm for having to play the role of the heel. Yeah. And of course they'd make the firebender the villain because they're playing to an Earth Kingdom village. Yeah. I feel that because the way um, Mako and Bolin grew up, like... Mako's managed because he's always had uh sorry, Bolin's come out of it because he's always had Mako with him. Like he's come out of it like no matter what happens, everything can still go okay. Like and everything he's been through has just been a testament to that. Because no matter how bad it cut gets, there's always a silver lining, there's always some way we can fix things. Even um, Mako's gotten to get funny this season. Yeah. 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 Like uh, and not very often, just in a few little places, but mostly where he just gets awkward or uncomfortable and sticks his foot in his mouth. Like mm. when they're in Zafu and he's they're sitting at the table and he's trying to hear what people are saying, and he's like, What are they saying? I hate sitting all the way over here. Yeah. And he looks over at Iway, who's looking back at him, he says, Not no because of you. <laughs> it's like, I can tell you're lying. And he just sinks into his seat. <laughs> yeah, actually Marco has been no fun at all for two seasons, and then suddenly they, they I mean, he's not a brilliant character. He will never really um, he, like what? What is Marco's moment throughout all four series? What, what's his big bit? For me, it feels like the very, very end. Yep, I was about to say the same thing. And ultimately, uh, the the character you're constantly comparing to him to is Zuko, Zuko. and yeah. he's never going to match up to that. Uh, Zuko's arc is one of the great character arcs of the Avatar universe, and yeah. Marco's just doesn't have that. I wonder if that is in part because he was created essentially to be a romantic foil and then wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that next episode. But but to go back to Bo Lin, mm. one of my favorite character interactions this season was when Bo Lin and Asami were playing a pie show of each other. Yeah. Um, because... That is a dynamic that we rarely get to see, those two interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, you get to see the strengths of both characters in that sequence. But also at the same time, um, at, at the same time as getting some characterization for these two, that that Pi Show game almost acts like a meta commentary on what the show is talking about. Like when they talk about how every culture has their own interpretation of the game, their own rules, mm. and and Bolin goes to um, Avatar Korra goes, "You need to standardize these rules. You need to make everyone conform." <laughs> and that's kind of what the show is about. It's about how how does the avatar define what balance is for the entire world when everyone from Zaheer to Aman to uh, Kuvira has their own ideas of what balance is? Um, and it was a it was a nice microcosm of 
what the show is about in a what is essentially a comedy scene between characters. Yeah. And also demonstrating how smart Asami is. And that's her as a character. That's um, what ultimately makes her more than a match for the benders she goes up against. She can outthink her way out of situations. Yeah. Um, the, the scene with uh, Korra and Asami in the blimp, Asami piece by piece disassembles the ship because she knows how it works. She knows the inner workings of this ship. She's it, almost it was... Mary Sue-ish. I mean, you know, with the perfect hair and the fact that she's skillful at pretty much everything she puts her mind to. Fortunately, she has just enough anxiety to make her feel very human. Yeah. And she's got all these master fighter, powerful people around her that she can't match up to in that way to kind of, yeah. like, even if she is, does seem just about perfect in every other way. By to remind you, she's not the most powerful. When she's surrounded yeah. by all these super powerful warriors, she doesn't seem like the most powerful person in the world. Yeah. Although that bit where she f- flips that guy over and then shocks him, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but uh, most of all, I think we kind of have to jump forward to Korra's trauma here. Um Asami has been uh, more clearly positioned uh, in, in this uh, season and, and definitely in the next as uh, Korra's rock, the um, the person that Korra comes back to. And there's uh evenness and a stability between them, which is so refreshing when compared to the teen angst of the whole Marco, Marco the bullshit idea of combining people's names together to create some sort of relationship unit. It's all of the, the, they're screaming at each other and stuff like that. That it's, that's not to say that there's no conflict, especially when Korra comes back at the beginning of season four and, uh, Asami is, is clearly very upset that, um, there was no communication about that. Uh, but there's a calm to their relationship. Yeah. Cause if you think about, it, um, Mako is a bit, He's too brood and he's too dark. Whereas the Bolin, he's too bright, like everything's too good to him. Where it's like, Assam, she has a balanced view. So having someone like that, like that's the person you go to for advice and to counsel with. Well, they, they complement each other, which mm. is the important thing. Marco and Cora, um, although, you know, clearly book one had them build as the couple. Um, ultimately, the writers took it in a, di- a different direction. But I, I always felt that Asami and Korra kind of they, they made each other a bit better because Korra's a hothead, and so is Marco. Mm. You should never combine two hotheads together because all you get is fire. Yeah. Um, but you need you need <laughs> you need Asami's calming influence because then they complement each other. But also then. Um, Cora's, you know, ability to explode can be focused mm. uh, in a way that makes them both uh, more powerful. Um, yeah, it, it was great, especially the scene between them at the end when Cora's uh, in the wheelchair and they're about to go off to see Janora's ceremony. That was a really touching scene, and and I was so glad to see some real, rom- you know, not to spoil book four, but kind of a romantic kind of intimacy instead of the teen angst kind of relationship stuff that we've come to to expect from mm. anime and and everything else I, I i you just need to remove the word romantic there just the intimacy side of thing it was kind yeah. of I'm neither here nor there whether there was romance involved with it the uh fact that it was 
Asami there at that yeah. point, saying, if there's anything you need. And yeah, it's true. Cora it's almost like and- no one else seemed to really get how deep down Korra was gone at that mm. point. Yeah. It's like Korra and Mako, even when they were at their best, always felt like sort of a teenage relation, romantic relationship. Just a mm. very kind of, hey, like like we're kind of adorable together and we're and we have fun we fight but we're we're just we and we enjoy being together and we're very cute but Korra and Asami being together is a much more grown-up mature just relationship yeah they're like they are there for each other there's a really lovely moment um almost at the very beginning of this season actually where uh, they're at the air temple and they're all sitting down eating dinner together um and even Bolin is there and there's this very sort of domestic bliss feel about it and Asami is stood by the door and it's almost as though she's waiting to be invited into the family a- another scene uh, with Asami and Korra that really stands out for me is when Asami tries to teach Korra to drive. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lot of comedy drawn out of that. But yeah. the mature conversation that they have about their relationship, their shared relationship with Marco. Yeah. Because you could, you could so easily pit those characters against each other. And, and I've seen it happen before in other TV shows. It is create- the standard way females are presented as relating to each other is as competition for the men that are around yeah hence that doesn't pass the bestial test if they're talking about a guy yeah but to have these two kind of confront the fact that yes they 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 both made mistakes when it came to that uh, interaction but they forgive each other and they're just both happy that that this drama that occurred in season two didn't come between the two of them and that conversation was really touching and I'm, I'm glad that the writers put that in there because it's not necessary. It's not a necessary scene, but it adds so much color to both of these characters. I think um, you write about them complimenting each other, Josh. And I think it's, there's a few moments where you see that it goes both ways. It's not just that Asami is very, very good for Korra, although she is, um, Asami can seem sometimes quite hesitant um, Mm. and her anxiety prevents her from really blossoming and and achieving what she can be. And I think being around Korra, who is more impulsive and does tend to uh, to act more introvert encourages in, well yeah possibly so but it specifically encourages her to do the same to try and keep up and as a mm. result she ends up in these scenarios where the skills that she has are able to come to the fore which without Cora kind of almost yeah. she doesn't she doesn't push her into doing things but she does sometimes pull her if that makes sense yeah well, it, it, it's like having a, a running partner. Some people feel the need to sprint the whole way and get themselves exhausted, and others mm. dawdle. Whereas you, if you put two of them together, they start running at an even pace. Mm. And that's kind of what Cora and Asami do for each other. They make sure that they're, they're running at an even pace together. I can't believe I managed to restrain myself when you said this, that their relationship went both ways. Well done. Yeah. Um, I'm growing. <laughs> I'm fairly certain there are going to be people who are uh, expecting us to talk about the controversy. No, and I, I think you need to Not start if... talking about it now because this is the season that starts really establishing that yeah. relationship. Yeah. Although I will say 
called it. Speaking of flagging, I think I did too. Actually, quite yeah. early on, I think I just immediately agreed with you as soon as you uh, muttered, muttered something along those lines. I was like, "Yep, that that would make perfect sense." I completely didn't see it coming, but then as soon as I like, as soon as I did see, see it, I was like. That makes so much sense. I don't know why I didn't see that coming. <laughs> mm. For me, it was more that I wanted it to happen, but I just didn't think the restrictions that they would have would allow it. Mm. So when it right. did happen, I was like, oh, great, this is a step in the right direction. Isn't it ironic? They got away with an actual murder in this episode, in, in this uh, season, and the idea of they might not be able to get away with two people in love next season. Yeah, well... <laughs> It, it speaks to the society we live in, unfortunately. Yeah, but, uh, we can't. It certainly talk speaks to... to the society uh, Nickelodeon live in. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think being able to talk to kids, quite frankly, about same-sex relationships is something I want to see more of in the future. And yeah, I, I'm so glad that Cora kind of made steps towards that. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Other things that are flagged uh, for uh, the uh, for the next season, Kuvira, that is just there so that when you come back to season three after season four, you go, oh, because for me, Kuvira came out of nowhere. I was just like, wasn't she in the last season? I can't remember exactly what she did. But then suddenly when she turns up and says, my name's Kavira," and they're like, that's going to be significant to the people when they come back to it. They do <laughs> say in season four who she is. She is referred to as Su Yin's old captain of the guard. I know. Yeah, but, but, but it, not it, in a it's... way that it's like really hammered at home. Yeah. I knew that scene was going to be important. I didn't know it was going to be to the extent that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, wish and, she was telegraphed just slightly more. I mean, she is she's throughout the actually entire book she's in there. I think she's in Suyin's dance troupe. There's a photo of her in the paper Lens reading. She's one of she's one of the guards who's always there in Zaofu and then she's only mentioned by name at the end. But it is still to the point where even just watching book 4 like I think a month later when it came out, yeah. I, I was still like it was still a case of, "Oh wow, you're an interesting character. Who are you?" <laughs> and it is obvious that but they so were interesting characters. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, it, it is obvious that they were intending this to to sort of grow and and be planted because she's Zelda mm-hmm. Williams from the very beginning. And yeah, yeah, no, that that, that whole thing seems carefully uh, uh, set up. And like I said, well, it, it has a lot more impact when you go back to it. I mean, Definitely. you know, I recognize it because I'm doing that exact same thing with the stuff that I'm writing now. So it's, it definitely seems like uh, something that uh, when, you, when you're when you planning out your, your season arcs, you go, well, let's just set this one up here, shall we? It's kind of like, yeah. I mean, stuff like that happens in Harry Potter. You know, you get, you get um, like little things that uh, Joe thought of way early on and flags in earlier books suddenly become massively significant later. And, you know, some of them she, she, she builds upon and some of them she absolutely had planned. And it's stuff you saw in the Ang series as well. So it's nice seeing that happening. Yeah. And even in Korra, even as somewhat separate as a lot of these books are, 
plot wise, it is nice seeing some that those occasional moments where seeds are planted for future use. Yeah. Speaking of somewhat separate, it's uh, I tried to rank my uh, favorites of the seven. I put the uh, the Avatar series into seven, and Good luck. yeah, it's tough. <laughs> and uh, I'm one of the few people who absolutely loved season two, and uh, it's I, I don't Same. even think there's anything to be gained from um, from ranking them. There are elements I like from all of them. There are there are bits in every series that made my heart sore. And to yeah. that end, I can't stick them below any of the others. I will say that the last few episodes of this season, mm. I think, make up maybe the most exciting yeah. finale any season, even in the Ang series, has had. Like, I love the season finale stuff from Ang, but the so much is at stake with in these last few episodes, and yeah. so many characters we care about are directly involved and in danger, and these fights look spectacular and their choreograph and their choreography is beautiful, but you almost can't be bothered to notice because you're too scared someone's about to die yeah and and you can and the geography of what's happening all th- over this temple and this little mountain, you can tell where everybody is and what's going on, and it is just so intense that and has such and because it's also not. At the when it's over, it's still not the end. The this big battle in the in the air temple is it the northern one or the southern? Northern. And the northern air temple had like the impact of this battle stretches on for years into the next into the next book. I think this might be my favorite season finale of any one of the seasons in all of the Avatar series. Mm. I, I'd I'd agree with you. Um I, I, I think the mistake that um, book two of Korra made was that they they made the stakes so huge that it was impossible to relate to. Yeah. When when Unalak was talking about ten thousand years of darkness and all of that, will it, it be would, ten thousand years of darkness? No. Okay. It, it's it's hard to be it's it's impossible to be scared of that because it's yeah. so incalculably huge that you can't even comprehend it. To that end, but, remember when we were scared that Genoa might die? That yeah. should have been the more clearly defined stakes of what might happen. Well, obviously, it's not going to be ten thousand years of darkness, yeah. but to achieve this prevention, what yeah. must be sacrificed? The, the, but the stakes here, the stakes at the end of season three, are simply a character we love may die. Yeah. And that is absolutely something that everyone can relate to. Yeah. And that's why this this finale feels so much more tense and scary. Um, and I knew season three was coming, but I was like, could they actually have a Legend of Korra without Korra? They... I actually believe that if, if Nickelodeon were like, right, this is your last series, they might just go balls out and go, right, well, then we're going to go ahead with plan A. Because after listening to an interview with Mike and Brian, I, I don't think they'd ever end a, a series that way because they were talking about the end of book two, Earth. Mm. And, the, and they were saying, look, everyone knows, everyone knows that Zuko is a going to join team avatar yeah. it's it's obvious at this point so the more interesting narrative decision to make here is to make the situation worse mm. before it finally concludes and i think they, they they took the same approach with the end of book three here is okay everyone knows that cora is ultimately going to save the day and 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 this this series is going to end on a positive note yeah 
it's more interesting to go as dark as we possibly can before we recover from that. And and that's what the ending of book three is. Yeah. It's like if, if a character has really, really bad luck, that's good writing. If a character has really, really good luck, that's bad writing. Yeah. Because also people can't relate to it. No one has really, really good luck suddenly at just exactly the right time. I mean, you, you, you do. You can all name bits. But um, you you watch things like this so that you can process the bad stuff that's happened to you in life and so that you can focus on the um, the joyful elements to see you through, ultimately. Uh, if it's just wonderful, disposable just unmitigated joy the whole way through. It's meaningless. Yeah. Well, Cora has to fight for her happiness. Yeah. And and it makes her happiness at the end of book four more meaningful yeah. because it was a struggle to get there. And that's something we can all relate to. You know, a lot, a lot of the best things in life are things that are earned, not, you know, stuff that's landed in our laps. Yeah. So, Yeah. I will say, when I finished book three, I was plunged into um, something of a depression. Uh, I just the the, the final shots of uh, Cora in the wheelchair, uh, her eyes red from crying and crying and crying, and just, I mean, like just detached from everyone around her. That that was so. It was it was really genuinely unexpected that they would go to that level of pain and then just end on that. Uh, so to a degree, it's almost it's not worse than her dying, but it's it's more surprising that they would. I mean, it's it's more likely that they would kill a character and then bring her back Marvel style than that they would actually leave a character that low and then it's finish. Harder up. to watch too in that case. Yeah, yeah. like that's just a character dying and going out in a blaze of glory or anything like that. Yeah. And especially what and to see that sadness even while watching what is one of the greatest triumphs in the whole series of stories we've been yeah. seeing, the air nation recovers. Yeah. And is strong again and a new airbending master is is like is initiated and born into this world and this is I mean, yeah, this should be one of the highest points possible in this for anyone who's been watching this story, but then seeing how Cora is left even at this moment. And everyone else it, is experiencing this joy because they can't incorporate how terrible Cora feels into this ceremony. They have to pretty much ignore it. Yep. I don't think they can they can really comprehend it in all fairness. I d- I don't think any of them except possibly Asami has an understanding of how not broken but how how thin Cora is stretched at this point and i think the the way this is this is an idea that you don't see put across very often well in um anything that's directed at children because it's a really difficult concept to get your head around the idea that you can experience so much trauma and so much agony that you just get to a point where you can't feel anything anymore and that was what struck me the most about that scene and and the juxtaposition of of this being Janora's defining and shining moment and Cora can't feel it yeah yeah Hmm. 
again, incredible. Like, well, it affected me to the point where I almost, like, not so much I didn't want to go back uh, to um, Korra, but I was almost afraid of how this would be resolved or left unresolved or how they could move on from it. Um, it's. It- it wasn't quite as devastating as that bit in Dexter or the, or as show-destroying as that bit in Game of Thrones, but uh, it was enough to really genuinely affect me. And, and for me, it's why I kind of see book three and book four as the closest. Of all of these seasons, I think these two are the most closely connected yeah. because... Book three they have a is, plan here. Yeah. Book three is the trauma and book four is the recovery and the forgiveness. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I, I kind of see them almost as one season yeah. in a way, even though the, the primary anta- antagonist is different. And, and I mean, uh, thematically, the two seasons are very different. They, they do feel like a Kill Bill Volume One, Volume Two situation mm, for me, completely. in that yeah, that they're, they're they're two parts of the same whole, but still distinct. Um, yeah, and and even you with need the antagonists. So, yeah. Sorry, even with the antagonists, one the first one is trying to break down what's there, and the next one is trying to rebuild it, but in a really unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's when you see it as a whole. There, there feels like, like, like I said, the, the end here traumatized me, but that now coming back to it, knowing how it ends, it feels natural to that, that there would be this incredible high for everybody else, but that Korra is this low and that they would, they would slowly realign to a balance over time. And there's a lot throughout the series about acceptance of the, the pain that we go through and not considering it intolerable, but being able to, deal with it, live with it, cope with it, and confront it. As opposed to just pretending it's not there. And that actually uh, makes Korra feel more like... uh, Korra is this series... is more like Zuko than she is like Aang in many ways. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I I mean... um I, I, I'm going to say something that might be controversial. I think I prefer, I much prefer Korra as a protagonist to Aang. Mm. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would have said that at the end of book two of Korra, <laughs> but at the end of book four, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think her arc is, is really fascinating. Aang's and, arc uh, is also fantastic, but I completely see why the, the, yeah, uh, the yeah. maturity of, of, of Korra's storyline uh, just because of their practice and because they got to start out there oh, yeah. and then build on their first season idea. I completely get that. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely love Aang. Uh, yeah. He's he's one of my favourite protagonists. I can't speak English all of a sudden. Pragmaticists. Pragmaticists. He's one of my, <laughs> <laughs> my favourite protagonists. And um, But as you say, it, it feels like the writers just know what they're doing a bit more here. Um that they have an idea of how to build um, a more interesting character arc, and I think we're constantly comparing her to Zuko because Zuko, I think, 
I, I don't want to speak for everyone. I think Zuko had the most interesting arc in the yeah. original series. Um, and, and now we're seeing that in our lead character. Mm. Yeah, Aang had some areas he needed to grow in because he was a kid grow, growing up with enormous responsibility. Zuko was a character that needed to be broken down bit by bit and then rebuilt much in the way that Korra has been needing to. And I mean, even starting at this book, she's realizing how she's finding weaknesses in herself that she that we may have seen but she's never really been that aware of yeah so yeah to her she and zuko have a whole lot in common I also like the fact that uh, Zaheer was uh, when started out captive and ended up captive. That uh, he didn't fulfil his aim, and he ended up back where he started, as opposed to just he exploded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is kind of what happened to Unalak. Yeah, looking at book three and, and four, it really does make actually. you. It does make you look back at book two and just start thinking even more. Like, what happened? Like. <laughs> Like what? Like, were different people involved, or were different well, yeah, people in, in charge? Terms of, in terms of animation studios, well, it's animation studios, but the, like book two's problems aren't animation related. They're, yeah. They're, yeah, sure. Like Perro had some couldn't quite match Mir, but I mean, the, book two's problems are all story and character related. And yeah. looking at how incredible this book is right afterwards, I just can't figure out what on earth went like. Like resulted I, in ev- book two. Every single season could have benefited from a Tales of Bar Sing Say episode where they just slowed down and um, I mean they, they, they've they they slowed down most in season three in terms of being able to sort of enjoy themselves, but um, there needed to be an episode in season two where you really got uh, uh, Unalok's motivations. There needed to be an episode in season four where you really dwelt with Kavira and looked at her growing up. Because that all comes out at the very, very end, and you're like, "Well, hang on, I really need to know more about this." And then it's, it's that's it, it's end. Yeah, and I, I feel like that ultimately comes down to how long these seasons are compared yeah. to the the Ang seasons. Each season of uh, Ang's story was 22 episodes, roughly 22 episodes, whereas here we're dealing with 13, 13 14, 14 yes. um, and. Ultimately, you have to be super economical with your storytelling. And having in order said to- that, there is there is flab in two, and even in three and four, actually, where like the 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 nuktuk stuff could have been sacrificed a little for yeah. uh, for more characterization. Well, I- and that freaking clip show in season four, I. The clip show in season four, I can forgive because I know the backstory behind that clip show. Um, we'll I talk don't about know. that next time, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, with season two, all of that struck me as, oh dear, uh, this mini series that we created has just turned into a serialized uh, program. 
uh, we've got to think of a way, we've got to cobble together a story really quickly. It, season two, for me, felt rushed yeah. uh, more than anything yeah. and yeah. really cobbled together. Whereas season three and season four feel like, although, as you say, there there's some details that are compressed, um, it, it does feel like that more time has been taken to smooth the edges, to perfect the character arcs and and the the themes they're going for. Mm. Maybe that is just the case. Maybe because they were originally planning for the just the book one miniseries, that was the plan, then realized that they were going to be getting more seasons. And even though they had a longer, there was a longer gap between book one and two than there was between two and three and three and four, they they had more time even during the production of two to be figuring out what's three and four going to be and yeah. to kind of let, let those ideas stew and simmer. Yeah, because three so and four got greenlit in the middle of season two, didn't they? Yeah, and then they came really fast too, like yeah. only just mere months apart. But uh, yeah, I guess yeah, it's just the extra... The- <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> One pun per podcast, that's my, that's my limit. I guess, that, I guess that does explain it though. Two had to... They had to come up with a story and get it into production and get going. Yeah. And there were just some stuff that didn't that needed a little bit longer to cook. And they, they hadn't actually left threads open from season one because they just closed it off in a neat way. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, overall, like I said, now you can see the actual full structure of it. I think people will go back and watch season two and go, you know what? This set up Varric, if nothing else, and <laughs> well, uh, Jinora on her path towards becoming the, uh, the airbending guru, frankly. Well, beginnings part one and two are still two of you know two of my absolute favorite Korra episodes, and they're in the season I consider to be the weakest. Like even the weakest season of Korra has mm. some great content. I was just there. about to say those two episodes also my two of my favorites, and maybe the most incredible moment in all of Avatar for me. Just Korra meeting Uncle when she's a small child in the spirit world, and really, really needs to meet Uncle yeah. at that point. My God, that moment. Yeah, yeah that's, that, I watched book me. two before going into book three this time, and I and I did have that kind of reaction. I remembering, especially knowing that, having seen three and four now, and now knowing that, like that dread I had at the end of book two of maybe this is all just going to go off the rails and fall apart. Knowing that things do come back in such an enormously great way. Looking back to book two, there's still lots of stuff that is weak and that I wish was stronger, yeah. and it's really unfortunate. But you. It's a lot easier to appreciate what was still great about it, despite those problems, yeah. knowing that things are going to get better. It, it's just like watching book one of Aang's series, knowing that this is not quite coming together yet, but I know where this is headed. Mm. Mm. Which is why it's always much easier for us as, as long-time Aang fans to go, just just bear with it through season one to newcomers. Just just grin and bear it. I mean, I, yeah. I still love season one. My friends need to suck on those frogs. <laughs> but, I gotta um, watch that series again. Yeah, totally. Uh, in HD, please. Okay. Yeah. That, that's that's not that's not me making demands. That's me suggesting that the world would benefit from HD. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys very very much for uh, coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries. No worries. Thank you. No problem. And before we go, uh, please do pimp your shows. Uh, start with Dan. Uh, you can find my uh, YouTube channel. It's called Extra Credits on 
YouTube. And you can uh, watch all of the lovely shows that we have. We talk about video games, about uh, the game industry, how games could be made better or more effectively. Some of it's just... uh, about the art that video games represent as a medium. Some of it's just the practical nuts and bolts of how these things are built. So, uh, yes, so enjoy that. Joshua. Uh, before I plug my, uh, my own stuff, I just want to mention, Dan, uh, Extra History is fantastic as well. Yeah, and everyone should yes. check that actually, out. Yeah, well. Dan, do, do you want to add that one? Because not everyone who's uh, seen Extra Credits will know about that, actually. Okay, actually, yeah, I will. And uh, on, on the Extra Credits <laughs> channel, we actually have numerous series going now including uh one called uh james recommends where our writer recommends uh just small interesting games a lot of people may not have heard of um with design club which is gets more into the nitty-gritty of game design kind of analyzing game footage moment to moment uh and also uh one of our newest series is extra history which is uh expanding on an idea we kind of started about a year ago where we just go into take a small piece of world history and go into it in depth and kind of find the human stories in it and just give a little bit of a crash course taste uh, of just that little era and just try to use our format to uh, talk about world history. So check that out as well. Josh. Uh, you can find me on com, where you will find a podcast where we take a game or a series of games and dissect them and analyze them in detail. Uh, you can also find interesting articles and videos uh, on the website. Uh, I also have a video series which I sometimes uh, release videos for called the Animation Archives. You did a bunch um, with uh, Legend of Korra actually, so uh, yes, that's I definitely did. worth plugging. Um, I do a, uh, a vlog uh, review series for Book Free. Uh, unfortunately, the video quality is not great, and mm. it's the reason why um, I didn't do it with uh, Book Four. But I think some of my opinions are worth listening to nonetheless. Um, and but you'll also find. Do you get people uh, going? You said promised episode. Where episode? Yeah. Oh dear. Sorry. Um, uh, you'll also find uh, videos where I analyze movies and TV animated TV shows, uh, such as Princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. which is a huge influence on this series. Clearly. Definitely recommend the Animation Archives. It was an episode of that that clued a lot of us talking on this podcast now into, into how Avatar, great yeah. Avatar was. And the man who got Josh into it... <laughs> Mr. Jerome McIntosh, uh, do you want to mention Game Burst? Yes, um, you can find me over on the Game Burst podcast. Uh, we do a tw- we do a twice weekly show on Sunday. It's news, and on Thursday you either have a replay or a roundtable or a quiz. Um, our next upcoming one is the 38 games we're looking forward to. So tune in on Thursday for that. I think yeah, so. If you're if you're the original avatar, then from now on your name is One. and Korra fans coming next week my steampunk audio drama series continues in podcast form if you go to iTunes right now and find New Century and then click subscribe you can download all of season 1 the cartographer's handbook as one big audiobook and there will be new season 2 episodes every week if you've not yet had the pleasure, Season 2, Secret Rooms, Episode 1, is designed as a recap and makes a great jumping-off point for newcomers, with more warmth, more comedy, diverse protagonists, and language both eloquent and foul. 
And if you like Digital Drift, you can support it as well, because my Patreon page now covers all my projects. Show some monthly love and get access to all sorts of backstage goodies, whilst keeping two of the most high-quality and lovingly crafted podcasts out there and their creators alive and healthy. And to play us out, an immensely talented chap named David Fowler, who has harmonised with himself to make this a cappella Avatar medley. Now look for this video on YouTube because he gets all dressed up too. See you next week for The Legend of Korra, Book 4. Balance. Thank you to all my guests, and yip yip. Comes marching home.